Suffering, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at River. River's the best place to buy Bitcoin. You can easily buy and sell using the app. If you dollar cost average, you're not going to pay any fees on those buys. If you set up um, daily, weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever it is, you set that up, set it and forget it. You're not going to pay any fees on that. They have limit orders as well. So maybe you want to price snipe and set your your buy below where the current price is or above where the current price is. You can easily do that within the app now as well. They have auto withdrawals. They really value self-custody at River. So you can give them an address to a wallet that you control. And once you hit a certain threshold, they'll send the Bitcoin directly to that wallet. They're doing it the right way. They build everything in-house. They don't have any third-party dependencies. They don't depend on... Fortress Trust or Prime Prime Trust or any other third parties. They build their wallets, uh, their multi-sig cold storage in-house. Everything's backed one-to-one, fully reserved. Go to river.com slash TFTC. Sign up today. Great time to start sacking sats. River's a great place to do it, not financial advice. This was also brought to you by good friends down the hall, Unchained. It's lively down there right now. And then they are strong down the hall. They're leading the way in terms of leveraging Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties to bring you products that give you peace of mind, whether that's their vault product, their core product, which is a two or three multi-sig, where you can hold two keys, you can hold one key, you can hold no keys. They've got multi-institution, multi-sig now, partnerships with CoinCover, Kingdom Trust. They just announced Backed last week, really leading the way on multi-institutional, multi-sig. Again, they had that vault product. You can buy Bitcoin easily and sell Bitcoin via Unchained. Buy and send it directly to your vault. They have an RIA product, which gives you peace of mind, uh, knowing that your retirement funds are in Bitcoin in a wallet with keys that you control. You can roll your IRA over. Uh, they have an inheritance protocol, too. Talk about peace of mind, passing your Bitcoin on. Uh is a big problem that many people think of. Unchained has created an inheritance product, a protocol to make that as easy as possible. So hit them up. Go to unchained.com slash consultation to learn more about what they're building, why they're building it, and why you should be securing your Bitcoin interacting with their products. They do it the right way, freaks. Unchained.com slash consultation. Set up a call today. This trip was also brought to you by friends at CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is here help you bring sovereignty to your healthcare. If you're in Bitcoin, you're finding monetary sovereignty in the Bitcoin protocol. You should go seek sovereignty in other parts of your life. Healthcare is one of the pivotal parts of your life. CrowdHealth is really attacking the health insurance model, which is typically expensive, opaque, impersonal. CrowdHealth isn't health insurance. It's crowdfunded healthcare. You join the CrowdHealth community. You pay a monthly fee. If you ever go to the doctors, you pay the first $500 of that bill, then the rest is crowdfunded by the CrowdHealth community. They have a Bitcoin community. And the beauty of CrowdHealth is that you have health advocates. So you can get a personal experience, talk to somebody to advise you on what to do if you have a healthcare incident or health event that you need to take care of. They advocate for you with the doctors. Since you're paying out doctors in cash, they can negotiate prices lower and they get very steep discounts on everything. 
It's a beautiful thing. Uh, if you're looking to take sovereignty over your healthcare, me and my family have done this. We've been using CrowdHealth for almost two years. The experience has been incredible. It's much better than the health insurance industry. We were on Cobra, very expensive. CrowdHealth is much cheaper, much better experience. It's a beautiful thing. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Sign up today and you're going to get $99 for your first six months of subscriptions to the CrowdHealth community. Join crowdhealth.com slash TFTC. This trip is also brought to you by our good friends at Bitcoin Talent Co., a recruiting firm built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. If you're a company in the space looking to hire talent, to poach talent from the tech industry, from the banking industry, go get onboarded with Bitcoin Talent Co. They understand Bitcoin. They know multi-sig. They know mining. They know lightning. They're not just some run-of-the-mill recruiting firm that's going to try and gouge you for fees. They actually are going to help you find the talent that you need. And since they know Bitcoin, they know what you're looking for. They have a flex product as well. Maybe you don't need a full-time employee. You just need a contractor for three months, six months to help you on a development sprint, a design sprint, growth marketing sprint. You can tap into their flex network as well. Uh, If you're looking to get into the space and get into the best companies in the space uh, and you're in the tech industry or the banking industry or somewhere else, go set up a profile with Bitcoin Talent Co. Get in the mix, get your resume out there and come help us build a future built on a Bitcoin standard. Go to bitcointalent.co, tell them that TFTC sent you. Enjoy this rip. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Are we live now, Logan? We are live. Well, that's okay. that's the, that's the short form content that the kids like these days. Quick 20 well, to 60 well, seconds. Thank hits. you for inviting me. I'm I'm glad to be here. Well, it was a great show. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, was a, it was a great show. Let me see if I can get this fucking camera. People this give me was... shit for saying fuck. It's like, you know, go to church. Fuck them. Fuck them, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, I, You know, the... I tell people, I said, I use the word fuck like authors use a space bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a lot of fucks over the last 20 minutes. This is the longest it's ever taken us to get to uh, the record stage. We had to restart our computer repeatedly the old old tried and true when things aren't working just restart the computer i know you're saying the the world is pretty fucked up right now (laughs) that's why uh it's it's actually driving me a little nuts um and 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 uh, i have people saying dave you're worried about stuff you can't influence and i go yeah i know I used to think I could influence it by sort of laying out the story and putting out the truth that, that maybe somehow that would help, I guess. But, but the, the sense that, 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 that we're just being drowned out by the evil dudes is, is pretty overwhelming at this point. I think that's a sense. I don't know. I think, I think you do a good job. This show, particularly, I mean, you're probably, I think you might be our most tenured guest in terms of t- amount of times you've been on the show 
And I think was it about must be about five now or something, right? I think it's six, seven now at this point. Oh, it could be. One of the most favorite guests, and I do think you have an impact, and I do agree. It does feel like we get drowned out by the evil men and women in this world, but I do think I don't know, to me it seems like they're they're lashing out and trying to grasp control more aggressive than they ever have before, which is a sign that they're losing control on the back end. So I, they may project I, strength. I, I guess so, but it, it also feels to me, I've sort of narrowed it down to this thesis that uh, that when the internet showed up, all of a sudden their tactics changed completely. So they used to try to get away with shit, and now they just try to control the narrative. And so they don't even bother to try to get away with it. They just refuse to acknowledge it. I, I watched... This morning, I watched a clip of Rachel Maddow saying that, you know, after the Iowa caucuses and Trump won, saying, well, we're not going to show you the winner's speech because, and we've had this discussion many times, we're simply not going to contribute to him. You know, we're not going to help him in any way. And I'm going, you fuckwad, right? Uh, I mean, what, what kind of douchebag are you? They did this before, too. Maybe it was... His concession speech, or not concession speech. I, I remember something around the 2020 speech, election. Yeah. yeah. And then you had Joy Reid saying that Nikki Haley didn't win because she's... Well, it's, like, it's like when Kennedy um, Kennedy said something in a, in a CNN or MSNBC interview, and they cut it out, and then they said that, um, that Kennedy said stuff that they didn't want us to hear, but they didn't tell us what it was that they didn't want us to hear. And so I go, you know, I just, just, you know, blow your brains out. I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, I'm starting to get militant. I'm starting to get sort of gene pool scrubbing mentality. Maybe, maybe, maybe I have a mental problem. I don't know. Well, we know you have a mental problem, but we I do. Think it's we a good do know one. that, don't we? We <laughs> yeah. do know that. We do know that. Um, and so maybe, maybe I'm doing too many podcasts. Maybe I've got some podcast disease or something. <laughs> it's the best disease course, to have if you're going to have one. Well, if I have, I can't imagine what you have, right? You're, how many of these a, a week do you do? Uh, two to three, depending on the week. <laughs> we're we're tying each other now. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, while we're on it, I mean that's I think the big news topic of the day. Iowa caucuses last night. Trump won mm-hmm. by landslide, and now everybody's trying to position him as the uh, the fascist that we need to protect the country from and that'll be the the narrative over the next nine months this is the most important election of our lifetime we must stop trump at all cost despite what the biden administration has done over the first three years of three odd years of uh his administration his nothing but disasters nothing but disasters nothing but disasters I noticed when when CNN or MSNBC, they're the same thing, showed the results. They clipped out Trump's numbers, so, so the, the 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 screen was on Haley and uh, what's his name, DeSantis, and she said, "It's this is great news because we're down to a two man race." And someone said, "Are you aware you took third? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, so so watching. You know, you, did you see that woman on Sunday morning talk shows, that, which is sort of the highest level of mainstream media? And and she said she's expecting black swan events. Yes. I, I was on a Zoom call 
I'm in this doctor's Zoom group, and 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 we had a guy who's he's not CIA. He he gets described as a lieutenant colonel, and if you watch him on Fox, or whatever they just introduce him as a lieutenant colonel, but it turns out he's um he's um his name is Schaffer, Anthony Schaffer, S H A F F E R, and um but they actually introduced him as a lieutenant colonel. He says, but that was my cover. I was basically DOD case officer. So it's kind of like the DOD's version of the CIA. And, um, and uh, I can't remember where I was going with that, but, but, but I, it, it, it was an extraordinary interview where he, he talked about all the things going wrong in the world. And he's, he's as nutty as us actually. And at the very end, I said, look, I'm, I'm going dark and I, 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 I said, I'm talking about things like child trafficking and stuff like that. He starts talking about Epstein. And I go, no, no, not Epstein. We all know about Epstein. I'm going darker. And I said, okay, let me ask you this question. Um, is the Clinton foundation trafficking children? He goes, Oh, absolutely. <laughs> go, oh, okay. That kind of answers my question. You know, if the well, they Clinton got caught red handed, and hate well, you, didn't they? Laura Silsby, Laura Silsby, you know, but is she officially Clinton Foundation? I don't know, but the Clintons bailed her out. She got caught twice, actually. Yeah, I'm having yeah. a little bit of a crisis on writing about it because a it's hard. So I've been writing about child trafficking, but there's this one site that I found that's a goldmine of links, just a true goldmine. It's like the encyclopedia of child trafficking. And the problem is I go, well, why am I writing about it then? Just go to that website, start clicking links and read about it. Now, they don't write about it the way I write about it, but but it's still, I, I, I was digging through all that sign. I go, it's all here. I mean, it is all here. And, and, um, and when you read about that story, you end up concluding that there's things going on that the average person on the street cannot fathom. That just so far outside their 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 the known world to them, and you sit there and you go, I don't. Am I too deep? Is it getting too weird? If I if I signed off on stuff that just isn't is profoundly illogical, I, have you lost your mind? And but uh, but then you'll see something that says no. There's more evidence right there. So, um, I mean, so yeah. I've been DMing you, waiting for part three, but it seems like it, uh, I'm not, I can't imagine well, I'm writing how, it. I'm writing yeah. it. What, and, I mean, what, what do you think the, the common man can't stomach or fathom? Like how, how dark uh, is, I mean, I felt in well, for let context. Me give you the darkest. Let me give you the darkest. The darkest okay. is a claim that Anthony Weiner's laptop has video footage that veteran cops can't stand to watch. And it includes footage now this 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 will this will cause your viewers to hang up right on the spot hillary clinton slicing the face off a child and i'm going oh that's a little different isn't it and and it's actually a veteran cop who's describing this footage one of nine who actually got to see the contents of the laptop and supposedly one of nine who are no longer with us so they all died yeah. And so, yeah, you know, I, I don't think the average person has even a micro smidgen of a capacity to process something like that. Now, it's also possible. It's not true. But I, I've read enough now. I'm pretty sure Pizzagate's real. I'm pretty sure that um, I'm pretty sure that child trafficking is a truly extraordinarily broadly based thing globally. And and it's being done by people of 
of great power and wealth. And it's not being done by just, you know, your archetypical perv with a van that says free candy on the side. And, um, and, uh, and then the question is, how do you separate fact from fiction? How do you know you're not getting some limited hangout baloney? Um, the other thing that's got me a little spooked is I'm, I'm writing about it. And, and there's people who've said worse things than I will say, like Liz Crocken. But I'm a little nervous that I'm misreading the room. And if, if, if say, for example, Liz Crocken is limited hangout, then I could find myself in trouble where she's not. And I, I worry, I'm worried I'm the FBI informant who gets arrested and put in prison for 20 years because I thought I was part of the, the team. And all of a sudden they go, no, no, we're throwing you in jail. So, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, I fell down this rabbit hole pretty, pretty deeply in 2020 when Pizzagate first popped off. And I mean, I think there was a lot of noise around, obviously, QAnon. I think QAnon was a psyop to sort of yes. just paint a broad yes, picture of. that's my conclusion, of, too. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a name. It's, it's, it's like a conspiracy theorist name. Alt-right, pizza, you know, QAnon, um, um, conspiracy theorist, right? Pedophile, if you want, throw that in there. No, but I remember vividly going to that dude, James Alphontis's uh, oh, Instagram account before he scrubbed it and taking screenshots. Jimmy, Jimmy the, Comet? Jimmy Comet? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those, that, those screen grabs are all out there. I ha yeah, so, I have so, some personally, so they're not like doctored. Like I went to his like account the day that like people found it and those pictures alone. Nothing uh, explicit. Stunning, stunning, yeah. stunning stuff about having sex with five year olds and stuff, yeah. Taking pictures in the and, White House with Obama playing ping pong. Like. Uh, yeah, it's all out there. The, you, the internet never sleeps, right? Yeah. And so I have found a vast quantity of stuff. Um, so much so it's hard to process, right? It, it would be like someone who stumbled into economics said, "Oh, I'm going to write about economics," you know. Um, and uh, and it's so dark and disturbing, but. The, the thing I keep coming back to is that the official numbers from UNICEF or the you know, International Agency for Abuse and Missing Children, all of which I think are staffed by pedophiles, if you really want to come down to it. I think you, know, you, want, to, you want to run a child trafficking thing, you just make sure that you staff the top positions in organizations that are supposed to fight child trafficking. Um, I don't... I still don't know fact from fiction, but I do know that that if ten percent of it's correct, then 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 we've got a monstrous problem. Um, evil people. Um, the overlap of pedophilia with Satanism is massive. That that Venn diagram is huge. They're always nearby. Um, the, the the official statistics claim anywhere from one to ten million kids a year disappear globally. And there are not enough pervs in the world to swallow up one to 10 million, right? It's just, so you, so you can't explain it as just a bunch of pervs having sex with a bunch of kids. So speaking of limited hangouts, like, or like is Epstein a limited hangout? Was that like a nugget? They threw us like, oh, we'll take down the big, the big uh, connector and this will all be he, done. He, he got written out of the plot. Yeah. He, yeah. he, he, it's like a soap opera and he, all of a sudden they said, okay, we're going to write him out next year. Now yeah. I'm not convinced he's dead, um, by any stretch of the imagination. 
Um, the cadaver they wheeled out did not look like Epstein to me. Now, the ears you know were very different. Right? Yeah. The ears yeah the, did not look well, the same. not just the ear. The nose to me was different. It turns out that the, the profile of Epstein and the profile of the guy in the gurney, anyone can look this up. Look up dead Epstein, look at his nose, and look at live Epstein's nose. I told you about the, the funny the funniest conspiracy theory in history about um, the internet discovers that the, the guy in the gurney doesn't look like Jeff Epstein. And so then they find a guy who's sitting there in a baseball game wearing a Mets cap. And, and they go, that's, that guy looks like Jeff Epstein. That guy looks like the guy in the gurney. I mean, and, and he died two weeks earlier. So that generated a cadaver and, and there was, he died with a little fanfare, no cause of death, nothing. And uh, and it turns out it was Hillary's brother. Huh? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hillary's brother died two weeks before Jeff Epstein. No cause of death. Very few articles about him. And uh, and you look at me, you go, that could be the guy in the gurney. And so the 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 internet said maybe some spook with a phenomenal sense of humor sent Hillary a message. Oh. You, you could imagine you say, you know, if we whack him, we could put him on the gurney and that would be just funnier than shit. <laughs> you know? And so, so, you know, I give that a low percent probability, but I, it, you know, if I were a spook and I thought of that, I go, Oh, we have to do this one. Right. Oh, this one's, this is yeah. too good. Now we, we have got to do this one. Well, that, I so, mean, I send a message. Maybe there's good people out there who want to fight this. And that's the big question because the Satanist tie did you see Out of the Shadows, that documentary? Yeah. Uh, I think Liz was in that. and mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty well, I mean, you it's well documented. On? Have you had Liz Crockett on? I haven't, no. I'd like I, to. I still, so Liz is out there battling like crazy. She, she still could be limited hangout. Um, she's on a board of one of those agencies that supposedly oversees the, the fight against child trafficking, and that's, that's sort of the... Oddly enough, a red flag. Um, the uh, but in my pursuit of this story, and and again, why? Why would I read about this? Well, I think we've talked about this maybe before, but um, what I've been baffled by is how there are leaders around the country and around the world who seem to be doing something that seems to be so anathema to what they should stand for. So. Let's go back to Europe when the when the 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 invasion from North Africa occurred about oh, it was about five or six years ago, right? And, and all these millions of refugees came in, and and where where was? By the way, I'd rather go to split screen if I could put in my request. There we go, request granted. There we go. I'd, I'd rather be able to see. I feel like I'm talking to myself. Um, and uh, and 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 why would Angela Merkel sit there and zip it? While, while North Africans are flooding into her country and flooding into Sweden and flooding into everywhere except, uh, ironically, Hungary, where Viktor Orban said, no way, we're not taking them. And then he got a, a lot of guff. And, and so what and they didn't they didn't do anything to stop it. And th- there's no way that they could possibly have concluded that bringing in a bunch of North Africans into Europe was a win. It's never been a win. And, and this isn't this isn't anti-Islam. Uh, I could go anti-Islam, but it's not. It's it's Islam and Christianity are so different that that they're just two cultures that don't mix well. 
forget about who's right and who's wrong. They just don't mix well. It's oil and water. Um, and so this idea that with diversity brings strength, no, it doesn't. It's a team sport. You got to get along. You got to work as a team. They don't, uh, Islam and Christianity don't work together well at all. And, uh, and so they let that go. And then you get the border. Um, they they clearly opened the border. They didn't just not take control of the border. They, they opened it. They, they were crystal clear about how nothing would stop these people when they came. And, and now they're claiming they did, but of course they always do that. But, but so, you know, hundreds of thousands a day are coming across that border. Yeah. I mean, the numbers alone from last year are stunning. Staggering. And as somebody who lives yeah. in Texas, it's with two young children. Um, it's and, extremely unnerving. Well, it, it clicked the other day when I went to a convenience store. Some guy walked up to me and I don't know where he was from, but he was clearly he was working with a foreign accent and certainly could could approximate a North African. And I, I was put back a little bit. He starts walking towards me, probably mooching money or something. But I imagine now, and it's not hard for you, imagine 10 of them. You're, you're now in danger. You're, you're in serious danger. And, and, um, and so, uh, so, you know, if, if, for example, they dropped a handful of bus loads in Ithaca, it would change Ithaca forever. Um, it's a little yeah. tiny hamlet, you know, with 40,000 people. And all of a sudden, if you can't go downtown, downtown dies. And then, then what happens, right? So, yeah. um, well, what is the goal of all this? That's what I'm trying to like, is, I mean, <sighs> you hear people talk about the great replacement theory. Is it just simply to uh, create chaos and division to confuse everybody to come down with stricter laws in the future to take away more civil liberties? Is it Certainly that's some, part of it. Is it just some I, most, of, most of the statements are stupid. Most of the statements are, oh, get more voters. I go, just rig the election. I'll tell you what, we'll give it to you. Just put anyone you want from your party in there. Just stop doing this, right? Um and I think the idea of bringing in immigrants for labor, maybe someone thinks that they can drive down the price of labor by bringing in laborers, but, but, but there's tons of Mexicans who would like to be here. These are not Mexicans coming across the border. We can handle that. We can let a lot of Mexicans and say, here's the deal. We're going to bring in a whole bunch of you guys. We'll give you a license, whatever. The, the Mexicans are not the problem. It's the other. And, you know, Bobby Kennedy went down there thinking he supported the immigration story, spent two days down there, came back and said, we got to build the fucking wall. <laughs> he, he was totally convinced by two days at, at the border saying, holy cow. He said that he estimated that um, maybe 2% of them were Spanish speakers. Yeah, and it's uh, all military age men, Northern Africa, yeah. China's got a lot of Chinese. Someone said it brilliantly. They said, uh, they said, when you run, when you run from war, you bring your family. When you run to war, you don't. Yeah. They're not bringing their families. No, and I saw something, I clip, I think it was yesterday or the day before they're completely, uh, gaming the system too. Like the system of coming across the border oh, and then the U S government will hand you $2,000 and somebody interviewed, a gentleman who had done this four times in a month and received $8,000 from the U S government. 
um, from the U.S. taxpayers. I, I, I hadn't even that. thought of that. So we got guys scrambling back across the Rio Grande just to come back again. Yeah. Oh, God. It, it, it is really insane. It was. I was very um, happy to see that Texas stood up last week and sent the Texas National Guard down there to secure the border and tell Department of Homeland Security to kick rocks. But So there's a guy I've, I've heard and listened to and read books by border guards. i got to find one. Um, oh, my phone. Um, the guy named J.J. Coulson or something. Um, and he, he, he uh, come on, dude. I don't know. Um, he wrote a book about, he was a border guard there for 25 years. He talks about the border like it's just a, its own world. That the border is like this 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 living organism that's just different than anything anyone can imagine. But he said that they would occasionally flag a person who's 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 a risk, not just generically, you know, not supposed to be there, but a risk. He said we'd send those guys back, we'd deport them, we'd deal with them pretty effectively. He says he estimates that at least a hundred thousand of those guys have crossed now. Really. Yeah, so he he's he's a big believer in the sleeper cell model. Now, the problem with this book is that when you read about immigration, the problem is is that everyone who's writing about this story as a this is a catastrophe is also rather pro-Trump, which I have no problem with, except for the fact that it means therefore half the country will dismiss you once the second you show pro-Trump. Yeah. So the trick. Talk about the problem at the border without giving Trump credit for trying to stop it, even though I think that is factually true. Well, then going back to the Sunday morning talk show, you had her. I forget oh, yeah, her that, name. So the, oh, that's right. I didn't finish that story. So she said, we're going to have some black swans. And that actually got legs. And it turns out this, this DOD case officer said, she's really a good person. She's telling us something. She knows something. And 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 it was a little spooky. Yeah. And well, that's where that's where things don't compute because you had her say that, and then you also had Christopher Ray, I think, in an interaction with Lindsey Graham on Capitol Hill, where Lindsey was like, "How many blaring lights are you seeing out there?" He's like, "Christopher was like the most lights I've ever seen going off. The alarms are are signaling." And so you have two examples of people. In positions of power are supposed to like look over this and, and the, they're agreeing and they're essentially insinuating that there's because of the immigration and the, the leaky border, there's probably going to be sleeper cells doing attacks. The sleeper the cell models terrifying actually. Um, yeah. And yet they don't do anything about it. They're, they're saying this is going to happen and then they're. Openly, so this like, gets back to this idea, open. this idea. So, so what got me into this again, back, what got me into the pedophilia story is I see people doing things that make no sense where I go, okay, po politically, I don't agree with a bunch of people, but we all seem to have some foundation level belief in our system. And I'm seeing important people who do not have that now. And I was looking, it's like an astronomer looking off into the galaxy and saying there's, there's a force out there we can't explain, we can't, the, the, the orbits are acting funny, and we go, ah, black hole, right? So I'm look, I was looking for the black hole. I was looking for the thing that was causing uh, 
per perturbations that were not explainable. And I, I sort of glommed down to this, this, on the surface, Epstein, which I think is in itself profoundly real. I mean, I think you make a career, as Whitney has shown, um, just chasing the Epstein-like stuff. But I, I, think, I think it's way deeper than Epstein. I think Epstein's a highly sanitized version. Because Epstein's basically getting a bunch of leaders and blackmailing them and shit like that. But it's, it's you sense he works for our CIA and the Mossad and stuff. And it's not positive that if you're going to get blackmailed by somebody that th those are the worst guys to be blackmailed by. Now, I still am not convinced. I'm not convinced the CIA works for us. If, if you, I think they're domiciled in the United States. The analogy is, is JP Morgan a U.S. bank? The answer is no. It's domiciled in the United States, but but it's got branches in every country in the world. So, so there's no way that J.P. Morgan necessarily, or even for that matter, the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve will do what's right for the banks. And I think the CIA is domiciled here and gets a budget from us. I read the book uh, Operation Gladio, and it's mm -hmm. about the drug trade. Now, I We all knew that the CIA had their fingers all over the drug trade. It turns out they are the drug trade. They don't just have their fingers in it. So the, the CIA, the Vatican, who are the bankers and, and organized crime, who, who do the street level stuff. So CIA handles geopolitical. Vatican handles the banking and, and the, 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 the mafia types um, make sure the drugs get into the junkies. And, and, um, and, and so that is the drug trade right there. So, so you're going to go against those three to try to, to try to take over their territory? No, not a chance. So, so the CIA, these guys, this triumvirate, you know, were looking for better revenues. And so they went and they said, okay, we're going to move it into the, this region of society and that sort of thing. And uh, then the question is, does the CIA work for us? Or are they just an international crime syndicate that has a, line item in the budget that can't be audited <laughs> that can't be audited that, that finds budget. money that and, and their black budget is so much bigger than their non-black budget yeah i think tucker he said something about this on one of his shows a couple of months ago but he when he was living in northern virginia his neighbors were cia agents with multi-million dollar homes and they're supposed to be making a government salary of like two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year is my is my shocked face <laughs> Um, but it does, yes. like, if they run it to, but that's where it seems like things are getting out of control when you bring fentanyl into it, where it's like they've gotten too greedy for their own good. Well, that could be the Chinese though. That could be this, the, the so? triumvirate I just described going against the Chinese. Cause I think the Chinese are the source of the fentanyl. So, so, so to explain all this bizarre stuff you can sort of bring the, the pedophilia as the way, you know, if you're going to have someone run the world, it's real nice to be able to tell them how to do it. Right. And so you blackmail them and you say, Oh, by the way, and, and I don't think they blackmail powerful people. I think they actually blackmail people and then give them power. I, I think, I think if you're not corrupted, then you don't get the job. Mm -hmm. um, and someone else, I ran into someone else who said that. And I go, did I channel that from them? Is that possible? Because I thought I invented that, but I don't, I don't think so. Um, and, and so um, I, I, I think that's part of the problem. It, it, I believe that to explain what we're seeing, you have to believe 
that someone is attempting to destroy the United States. It seems uh, like it. That's yeah. And, and, you know, Soros, I used to, I used to laugh off Soros and say, you know, every time you have something you can't explain, you blame George Soros. It's kind of stupid, you know, but, but I'm beginning to sense that it's not just George Soros, but he's just probably one of many fingers in the, in the pie. And, um, and, you know, the prosecutor who prosecuted Daniel Penny for saving lives on the subway, killing a guy in the process, which was fine by me. I didn't care. Um, he, he saved lives. And uh, it was the same prosecutors prosecuting Trump. I, I'd prosecute that guy. Yeah. No, I mean, we see it in Philadelphia too. Trump, or excuse me, a Soros-funded DA. I think it's come down here. Texas, Austin, I think Garcia, Soros-funded. And that's the other, I mean, the big trend over the last few years, too, is just in big cities, San Francisco, New York, Philly, Austin, to a certain extent, a lesser extent, but an extent nonetheless, just get these DAs in and don't enforce any laws. And we see Have examples. you dug into the, the concept of technocracy? Have you dug into that? I can't oh, remember yes. the author of the book. Who's the author of the book? I can't remember the guy's name. Um Whitney and I have talked a lot about technocracy. In terms and that of- goes back to the 30s, right? That goes back to when when the the Trotskyites and the capitalists were battling for how to run a technological society, and um, and the the capitalists had just screwed the pooch by generating a credit bubble. We're in the middle of the Great Depression, and the, and the Trotskyites were going to make some serious ground, right? And so technocracy came up. This idea that technology would help run the world. Um, the latest version appears to be a borderless thing that's more about regions. Very Hunger Games sounding to me. And, yeah. and um, which by the way, I think Hollywood doesn't just make up shit that kind of looks like reality. Hollywood makes up shit to make reality look like fiction. Yeah, and as you're saying this, this is uh, I'm reminded of something I saw this morning on Disclosed TV. Klaus Schwab says we risk becoming much more ego centered on a national and individual individual level, and wants to break this cycle. So saying Patrick that. Wood, Patrick Wood, the guy wrote Technocracy, um, and then you you that Vanderline or whatever her name is, that that Nazi from Germany. <laughs> um, talking about how the biggest problem is misinformation. Could, could they more clearly tell you that censorship is going to become even more oppressive than it is now? Yeah. Did you I, see th- that? Th- that's a, did you see that Google warning, the AdSense warning from a couple from last week? No, no. What was this? So Google AdSense, which basically runs their, their ad platform, sent out a email to anybody connected to the ad platform last week that come February, 2024, they're changing their policy and the words that they use in the new policy is we're we're going to ground truth. Google's going to ground truth. We're going to be the purveyor of truth. And so Orwellian. Uh, we're going to we're going to block people from serving ads or particular articles with particular sensitive words around sensitive events. Again, going back to the signaling, there's a lot of projection and uh, I guess predictive programming in terms of these black swan events that are on the horizon. And the fact that Google changed their their policy 
on AdSense, or we'll be doing that next month, basically saying we know that there's going to be sensitive events that we're going to censor around and just preparing their ad partners for this at some point in the near future. This could reach a point where it's, it's not worth the fight. So I've been humping Michael Malice's book on every podcast. In part, I'm, I'm not doing it to help him, although I'm happy to do so, but I'm doing it because it got in my head. So did you happen to read The White Pill? I'm not ready um, yet. But I've heard a lot it's about really, it. It's really, it's a stupendous book. Logan's read it. He's got his thumbs up in the background here. Yeah, it's a stupendous book. And uh, L- Logan, uh, put your thumb up, not up anywhere, just up. Um, he, what he does is he taught, you know, we all know that Stalin killed millions. What what I didn't know is how. So millions, I think it was Stalin who actually said, you know, one, one life's a tragedy and, and a million is a statistic. Isn't that Stalin's quote? Well, I think so. He, he was big. He's a statistician of higher order. Um, but what, what I didn't know is how you, how he killed millions and, 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 and uh, Malice does a stupendous job of talking about how he basically, through cruelty and all sorts of tricks, um, got society to completely consume itself. Now, where Stalin departs from someone like Hitler, and this is going to sound so odd, but Hitler makes more sense to me because Hitler identified a group as being bad, right? Now, I don't think anyone in the modern era would agree with what he's de- what he decided was a problem, but at least he identified this group and said, here is your enemy. Here are the people who are causing us trouble. And then he killed millions of them. There's a certain bizarro cold logic to that. Stalin just killed people. He killed major figures in Russian society, the best doctors in the country that he just, he just killed people. So he was like John Wayne Gacy on a, on a truly galaxy scale. Who, by the way, I, I've been reading that John Wayne Gacy might not have just been John Wayne Gacy. What do you mean? That he's got connections to intelligence. Uh, and, and I haven't MK, been able to get a con, con yeah, could be MK Ultra. MK Ultra gone wrong. Gone right. No, MK on. that's that's the problem. <laughs> right. I used to think Kaczynski was MK Ultra gone wrong, and then I realized no, I'm Kaczynski's MK Ultra gone right. They oh. they programmed him to do what he did and he did it. And um it turns out I, I've seen a couple of quotes from Son of Sam, and since it came from the internet, they must be true. Um, and he said some shit that really suggested he was MK Ultra too. And and it was about the right time, right? It was about the right time in history and stuff like that. And he was a little late. He was he was shooting people in '77, mm-hmm. um, and the Church Commission jumped in there around '72, as I recall. And the CIA claims they wrapped up MK Ultra, and I go, oh yeah, I believe that. <laughs> and um, and so then, um, so then, um, you know, Jack Ruby, MK Ultra, Charles Manson, MK Ultra. Although I'm not sure Manson was an MK Ultra product or or simply worked with people who were involved in MK Ultra. So Jolly West is the MK Ultra kingpin, right? He's the guy whose name keeps coming up. 
Mm -hmm. he, he had strong ties with Manson. He had strong ties with Ruby. He had strong ties with um, Timothy McVeigh. And uh, he keeps showing up when some guy from the CIA shouldn't keep showing up. And so, uh, and, and so it's kind of, can you imagine what it's like living in Whitney's head? <laughs> no. I, I mean, she just, you know, she's not married anymore. What she studies couldn't have helped. Right. I mean, it's, it's such a darkness that she, that she is battling. She's down in some crevice somewhere battling the Balrog. And uh, she handles it us, well. I've been talking. She does to handle it well. I know yeah. she handles it very well, but it's 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 so dark. And one day, you know, what rattled me one day. She was doing a podcast with who's that? B D B T. What's his name? Patrick Bet. Uh, Patrick Bet David or something. P B T. Yeah, she was she was yeah. in a panel with him. They started talking about the traffic, and she started crying. Now you and I both know Whitney is as tough as nails. And I'm going, holy shit! There's that. That was she. She. It really rattled her when they're talking about it. Yeah. Well, I think when and you have then, young kids, particularly, it's going to rattle you to your core. And it, I mean, it is dark, and that's like, I mean, people talk about like the Great Awakening, the Great Reveal. People are like, oh, 2020. Like you have the uh, WEF class, all these evil people with their evil intentions and going out and executing on the, their plans that. Um, are not plans. It's just everything's a coincidence. Then you have but the WEF guys we know are are totally front men. We're not going to see that what's really happening. So so we're while we're talking about Klaus Schwab, we're not paying attention to the guys who are really causing trouble. Yeah, but then you so, have this whole other sect of people that are convinced that there's going to be this great reveal. Again, going back to the fact that it seems like they're losing control quicker than ever. They, like I think 2023, particularly post vaccine and. Uh, the ramifications of the COVID lockdowns materializing in inflation. I think there are more people who are like, this is beyond fucked. Something's wrong. They're right. But the problem is, and again, back to the white pill, the problem is pretty much everyone in the Soviet Union knew, knew it was fucked. It didn't stop it from being fucked. Well, that's where I, you need somebody uh, to write a piece like live not by lies. That's, that's something right. I've been really focused right. on is like, how do we engender... Did you just read that? Live Not By Lives is very good. Um, uh, when you stop telling your kids the truth for fear that they will somehow blurt it out and somehow either get themselves or get you sent to a gulag. But I, I think I went off, the, went off the deep end a little bit a week ago when Biden was bragging about putting guys in jail for 870 years. Yeah, I, I I just lost my shit on that. I, I I just look at him and I go, send that guy to hell, right? Get out the guillotine, steal with that guy. He let them eat cake. That, that I, even if people deserve to go to jail, it's still a sad moment in U.S. history. He should not be bragging about us. Now, I also deeply, profoundly believe that 870 years of jail time is ridiculous. And I exactly. believe that the people, uh, you know, here's the thing I don't understand. And I get into this night. One of these days is going to get me in trouble. But so I like to put it third party. Imagine you're some dad or something. And your kid gets sent to prison for five years. 
for something that's totally innocuous. Aren't you going to get even? <laughs> you just you certainly would, would like to, whether or not you do. Right. And so then, the, so that, well, but, but it's seen, I, I, I'm watching the, my wife was watching this TV show frontier. It's about 1830, uh, sort of, little village on the Hudson Bay and traders and stuff. And there's some guys who are just supreme dicks. I've always wondered how you could be a supreme dick in a relatively lawless place. Since it's so also so easy to deal with a supreme dick. It seems to me that being a dick is a potential fatal move. It's like when I like to quote um, Malcolm Gladwell, um, in one of his books, he talks about culture of honor and he talks about Hatfield and McCoy's and how they were just an example of culture of honor. And all down the Appalachians along the South, there's this, this, you know, this fuck me, fuck you attitude. And it's very regional, it turns out. I think it might be where the Irish went or something. I don't know, something like that. Um, and, uh, and he describes a case where two guys were ripping on a guy at a gas station, just ragging his ass, giving him holy hell at a gas station pulls out a gun and shoots him, and then he gets acquitted. And when they asked for the jurors, why would you acquit him? They said, well, they should have known better. <laughs> that's the that's supreme example of culture of honor. I, I would think that every time you put someone in jail in this heinous way, that you are putting yourself at risk. Yeah, I mean, the whole January 6th insurrection coup. It's a horror story. I mean, it's it's insulting. <laughs> the worst event on American soil since nine eleven. The <laughs> the fact that they're they just I mean I saw you tweeting about this, but they just announced that they're going to start arresting people who are not even in the Capitol but were outside in the crowd. Ray yeah. Epps gets off with a slap on the wrist. He's not going to do it. He's got, got community I, service. You know John Sullivan, right? The the the, mm -hmm. the 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 black guy who filmed Ashley Babbitt supposedly getting shot, which I don't believe. Um, and uh, he and Ray Epps have a connection. They do. There are there's Shocker. there's there's photographs of him, the two of them communicating. And um, and uh, he got convicted, and I, I've been digging and I can't find the sentencing yet. He got, so if you get convicted, if you get convicted in November, would you not yet be sentenced? Is that a normal clock? Uh, well, I do have some context for this because SBF is obviously a big uh, theme in the Bitcoin space. He got convicted in November. His sentencing is in March, I believe. So the big cases might take a while then or something. Because I think yeah. in a normal case, you get convicted and the judge says, oh, by the way, you're going to jail for this much time. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens to John Sullivan because if, if he gets off, he did go in. He did, he did all sorts of shit. If he gets off with less than 10 years, then you know he's a Fed too. Yeah. Which I think he is. Well, it's, it's all very weird. Did how... you ever see the video, by the way, of Babbitt getting shot, the video that tears it yep. apart. You ever seen that one? Uh, not Were you one convinced that, that it was fucked up? Oh, like with the a, fake blood there's, and there's, stuff. There's and... a guy who put together, there's a guy who put together all this footy, video footage and said, you know, and he starts throwing spaghetti at the wall and he's laughing his ass off as he's narrating. He's going, oh, look at that. Look at that guy clown over there. And he gave everyone nicknames and stuff as he's going through it. I did and watch there's just this. Things, 
there's things in, so I start, I tried to write about it, but I, I couldn't for two reasons. One is I showed the video to a bunch of real smart guys. I, you know, a, guy, a guy in Silicon Valley who started more companies than we can fathom sort of thing and my brother and various people. And they say, I see the point, but I'm not sure. And so, so I, and, and since I couldn't write about it cause it's so video dependent that I'd have to sh embed videos and stuff and say, watch this. So then I finally just provided all the links to all the videos and said, go watch it for yourself. Um, but, but I was sort of also talked off it and, and normally that wouldn't happen, but since it wasn't easy to write either, but, but, you know, there was no blood splatter. The, the guy who smashed the window runs down the stairs, takes out his backpack, changes his shirt. He's behind the cops, you know, doing this. Um, one of the guys who did it turns out to be the son, a demo, the son of a democratic judge. And there's just all sorts of crazy shit. And what you can see in the video, the most striking thing, besides the fact that the guy points out familiarity amongst the players. So, so two guys walk by each other and they'll do something that says, those guys know each other. Mm -hmm. They know something. And then you got John Sullivan. Amazing. John Sullivan is omnipresent. He is everywhere in January 6th, right? He is everywhere. Um, and, and, I and then and then uh, they're doing CPR and I've, I've asked surgeons. I said, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but if you got a neck shot, you don't do CPR, right? Because <laughs> all you can do is bump the blood Blow the out of the, out. the chick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah boopa, boopa. It's a, yeah, it's like a squirt gun. It's like a super soaker. And uh, and then there's footage of them taking her out of the building. They literally drag her down the stairs by her arms and legs. They don't put her on a gurney. You know there's medical systems inside the Capitol because they're all a bunch of guys trying to die for us, not on us, for us. And um, and they drag her down the stairs, and she's still got her backpack on. I'm going, this is – and then what happens is when you zoom in on the video and you zoom in on the chaos and, and then, you know, there's guys screaming and there's there's all sorts of things happening, what the person points out is – there's no attempt to provide health care. So no one's ripping apart her shirt and putting pressure on the wound or anything, nothing like that. They're just positioning her shirt. They're moving the body. They're screaming. They're a lot of chaos, but no one's actually trying to help her. They're staged. And then um, it's, it looks staged. And then some guy, and, and the guy's laughing about it. He goes, see that guy over there? And he's trying to open up a gauze pad. And he finally gets the gauze pad open, right? And he comes over and he wipes off her shirt. <laughs> he wipes off her shirt. And so then about a month and a half ago, Cheryl, Cheryl Atkinson took it on. And I go, oh, now she missed some stuff, but she got a big chunk of it. And she had a couple of federal cops watching the footage with her saying, you'd never let that happen. You'd never let that happen. That makes no sense. And they were going through the footage and they were shooting holes in the footage. And then what they missed was here's a neck shot. And there's the blood on the floor looked like a shot glass worth. It was a tiny amount of blood. So I think they staged it. I think she didn't realize she's, I think she's dead, but I think she got written out of the script. I, I'm guessing that the thing was staged but then someone jammed a needle in her ass on the way out the door. 
and off she went. You're gonna, not going to do an autopsy on her, right? Because the whole thing staged anyways. Then, uh, then Merrick Garland, you want to piss me off watching Merrick Garland stand up in front of Congress and say that the, the protesters killed five cops? That is galaxy class lying right there. That's an extraordinary. But then you say, well, why? Well, because four cops committed suicide. And then you go, okay. How many cops were there? 100, 150, four committed suicide. I wonder why they all committed suicide. They say, well, it was really stressful. Like, oh, cops, that was an average day for some of those cops. Right? Cops put up with a ton of shit. Well, I mean, I'm picking up, like, all of this. I went, I watched this video, and I agree with you. That, but the one thing I can say, like, people will never again it's unfathomable people will never be like they script they they staged all this like i mean to me obviously maybe ashley babbitt dying wasn't staged or maybe that video pointed out some inconsistencies chaos of the day people didn't fall back to their their procedural training that they went through but still the the back-end narrative of this being an insurrection and the worst thing since 9-11 yeah they forgot to bring guns now i heard a defense of the insurrection assignment it was really interesting um did did you did you watch the the debate on zero hedge between three annoying as shit lefties uh the krasenstein brothers and uh and some other guy i can't remember his name and then three others include glenn greenwald and alex jones now I alex, clips from it. alex made it unwatchable alex could not behave himself and he ruined it he completely and utterly ruined it and then i saw clips from later where his chair was empty i have no idea i gotta go find out how his chair got emptied because there must be a there must be a funny moment there when his chair got emptied um but but um, one of them said, described inter- insurrections described in the Constitution. And you could kind of say you could make that fit. Now, here's the problem. Everyone on the planet uses a different definition. So when they say insurrection, um, it's like calling, saying someone's ignorant, right? It's got a seriously negative tone when, in fact, you're just saying they don't know something about something. Mm-hmm. But means more than that it means they're a shithead (laughs) i I was gonna say i thought glenn made some really good points on that in the clips that i saw it's like that to get in he's battling to get in alex just destroyed the thing as he's known to do he's uh can't contain himself i know and 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 the lefties were really good at at undermining him too they they really knew how to deal with him it doesn't seem that hard. But Glenn's point being no. like that the other side of the, the debate, the lefties couldn't believe that this is being way overblown because they don't even have the concept of the CIA and the deep state being infinitely corrupt from the beginning. Right. Like they don't think that right. these people have planned coups in other parts of the world and have used their influence and power to affect U.S. politics uh, pretty or regularly. they are out there doing their what they're told to do. I mean, you know, they're 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 thought leaders, possibly on payroll, oh. right? You know, when when there's some bad event, they they parade lieutenant colonels across the screen. Every you know, those guys are all on payroll. You know, they, they, whenever there's a bad event, um, Israel Palestine, which I, 
Yeah, Israel-Palestine, which I tend to stay away from in terms of the who's right, who's wrong part, but as soon as it happened, they paraded the lieutenant colonels across the screen over and over and over, describing how Israel blew it. You know, so the the narrative begins immediately. Yeah, I mean, it's going back to how crazy the world is devolving. If that going on seems like Ukraine may be coming to an end, it was funny how quickly they dropped Zelensky in Ukraine um, to focus on. Does he survive? Does he survive? I don't, I don't know. Seems seems unlikely, right? He seems I mean, he seems very unstable. If he was uh, somebody who felt that they were conned and wronged, does a little well, bit too much cocaine starting, one day. He's starting to starting to look a little like Hitler did towards the end of the war, where he was shaking his leg and stuff. You ever seen those Hitler tapes where he's yeah. clearly a speedballer? Yeah, high on mess. Um, yeah, and uh, no, but I, there's five hundred thousand Ukrainian moms who want to kill him, right? Yeah. So uh, I got to figure – and former U.S. puppets who get abandoned don't do well. No. Yeah, no, I, I don't think uh, – I would not be surprised if he's not with us by the end of this decade. By, by the way, I wrote about – as you know, I wrote about Ukraine in 2022. And the title of my poem was All Roads Lead to Ukraine, which – in part was because everything seemed to have a Ukrainian tie that year, you know, including, you know, including Victoria Freeland and, and, and there were Ukrainians at January 6th, it turns out. They, they, they were just everywhere that year. Um, I basically blamed the whole damn thing on NATO. And I, I dug into it. I found about 40 guys who seemed to be trying to get it right, including Gonzalo Lira. Um, rest in peace. Rest in peace, I think, I think. Um, and, and, and what, what none of them were doing is putting it all together. And so I, I, I think it's my best geopolitical writing. Um, I think I really got to the bottom of it. My conclusion was, is that, um, that unambiguously that the, the war was NATO's fault. We gave Putin basically, uh, we, we cornered him to the point where he had no options left. And so he played his best hand, um, I think he thought he could throw a fastball past the world's chin, and then it, we'd say, "Okay, never mind, never mind." You know, science, science on peace deal. You know, you don't take over Ukraine with fifty thousand troops, right? That that's that's not an insurrection either, for that matter, right? And uh, and then when NATO played hardball, he said, oh, "Okay," so he he rebuilt his army in earnest, and 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 now he's turned Ukraine into a into a killing field and and they didn't have to die and it's because victoria the hut insisted they die and uh and uh and so i I get i get mad at the sanctimony industrial complex the the ones who have their ukraine flag one day and their 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 palestinian flag the next day and you know that and i go where where were you while we were doing all this, where we killed, why weren't you speaking up when we killed 4.5 million people in the Middle East over 20 years? Where were you? Where were you when the Saudis were bombing Yemenis with U.S.-based weapons? Where was your protest? Their program malware that's triggered by the media wasn't uh, wasn't triggered for those events. That's right. That's right. But why is is killing 4.5 million 
Middle Eastern is not considered a Holocaust and a war crime, right? No, it would be in a sane society. It will be eventually in retrospect. Um, I hope. Uh, you know, there's, do, you, right? do you have any hope? Do you have any hope that we can get out of this? Um, I think we got to go through the valley of death to come out the other side. And, I, and generally, the trip through the valley of death is not a day trip. Right. It's not it's not a short journey. Um, the Great Depression was about 10 years. Felt like a, a century. Um, the 70s was a pretty ugly time for us, really. And, you know, bell bottom jeans. And <laughs> <laughs> um, but 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 we got through it. Um, this one, I think, will be uglier because I think we are, you know, more in debt more unstable um we really have again getting back to this idea that our leaders seem to have lost the sense of what we stand for they don't they don't i fine take your grift but you know i i think for example when the italian mob was helping us during world war ii i think the italian mob were patriots they were rough guys, but I think they had a fundamental belief that they were doing the right thing at that point. I think, you know, their neighborhoods were always pretty crime free and stuff. And, and, um, and, and now I, I just don't see it. I, I don't, I don't see anyone who seems to support what we used to stand for. No. The Republicans are only marginally better. No, nah, it's a whole uniparty. They're all, I mean, they just try yeah. to force Nikki Haley down everybody's throats. Um, oh, and you, oh, God! You can feel this happening too. You know, it's it's like some some porn flick, and you're the gag. <laughs> right. Well, that I mean, maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm too optimistic, but it does again feel like they're losing control. And then obviously we just talked a lot about uh, corruption and geopolitical stuff, but then you tie in the financial side of things. I find it really hard to believe. Um, well, but you know, when Stalin started killing people, was he losing control? No, he was actually gaining control. Yeah. But again, I think... Uh, Our DNA is different. Our DNA is different. It is. We, we, we have a history of not putting up with guff. But that, then it's going to be, you know, it's going to be up to the MAGA team or something, right? It's going to be up to... And it's not just... MAGA is the pejorative term. Um, I'm thinking again, a MAGA hat. Um, MAGA, uh, in 2016 election, I, I sensed something epic was happening. I didn't think he was going to win, but I sensed there was something changing in the country. And one of the things I wrote about was the fact that um, I, I said that it's, it's just a flicker, but um, but it looks to me like the black community is moving to the right. And uh, there's a woman down in our cafe who I get an occasional bagel from. And I talked to her and I said, does it drive you nuts that you get told that you can't do something because you're black and you need help? And she says, drives me completely crazy. Right. So oh, blacks can't get voter IDs. Therefore we have to let them vote without voter IDs. It's like, what, what kind of idiots do you think we are? And I think, that community, you know, Malcolm X many, many years ago said, look, listen to what the liberals have to say, but don't give them power. 
And he was dead right. In fact, I have this funny, I thought one of Malcolm X's stroke of genius, whether it was planned or just his belief system, I don't know. But when he, when he brought Islam into the black community, now I'm not a fan of Islam, but it was a distinctly non-white religion that brought order. And, 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 it was an interesting idea. It was a, a, a sort of a person of color religion. And and then, of course, they capped him. I don't know whether that was really just sort of a gang fight or what, but you could easily imagine it was more than we're told. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read his biography. Um, and if you go back and listen it, to his speeches, it's... Oh, he's brilliant. Anathema to what brilliant. the left is is trying to push out right out there. Right. Right. And so, you know, I remember when Jimmy Brown, the running back said, you know, Trump will be a president of the people. And I'm going, Oh, that's interesting. And then I'm watching this guy on black entertainment tonight or something, BET. And he's being interviewed. And it's this black guy who I'm looking at going, I would not want to get in a cage fight with that guy. He's, he's a tough looking bastard. And, um, and he keeps saying, ignore the, the messenger, listen to his message. He's talking about Trump. And I get to the end of the show and I'm thinking, who the hell is this guy? And it turns out he was the new, the head of the new Black Panther Party. And I go, the head of the new Black Panther Party supporting Trump? Holy friggin' moly. And then you got Kanye all of a sudden and you say, well, Kanye's a doofus. Well, Kanye's a doofus with a lot of fans. And then I think moving to the right within the Black community not only became acceptable, which... 15 years ago, you'd never say you voted Republican, right? Um, it became gangster. Mm-hmm. It became the cool kids moved to the right. So black MAGA, I, I rode in a cab with a guy in New Orleans, I, black guy, and, and I was asked him a bunch of questions. I said, oh, I got a captive audience here. I can get some shit. The guy was MAGA. It was really interesting. And, and uh, I gave him a big tip and I said, here's a big tip for either being MAGA or for being so good at lying your ass off to me that you deserve a big tip. You handle it beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> he, he read me and he played me and I said, you deserve this. Well, and, uh, this begs the question, like what the hell is going to happen in November? Because obviously now it seems pretty clear it's Trump versus Biden or whoever they replace Biden path. with. I can't see a good path. Because it was already pretty clear to me in 2020 that you just Joe Biden's rallies where people were standing in circles. There was like a dozen of them, maybe. Uh, right. You Trump would fill a state with yeah. lines around the block, right? Yeah. And it's, right. is it, is the power of the, uh, the white middle aged Karen that strong where they don't need to show up and they can just vote? Uh, well, Biden I think the when House. both parties want him out. When both parties want them out, then you've got no sheriffs in town, right? What do you mean? If the Republic, if he was the Republicans guy, then the elections couldn't have been rigged so effectively. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, um, one of the theories is it could be such a landslide that they can't even rig it away. I'm rooting for that. First, I want to see him get into office. I want to see him um, 
pardon all the January 6th guys. There's probably a couple who deserve to stay in there a couple of years, but not many. And they're all feds, so they're not even there. Um, and so I want him to pardon all the January 6th guys. Um, and he also, when he first got into power, he didn't know who he could trust. He, he tried to bring in Republicans. He couldn't trust them. Tried to bring, so he ended up bringing his family in, and that's not a healthy cabinet because they're not going to stand up to him, right? I was amazed at how, how unblemished Pence came out of a four-year period with Trump. And then I, I only realized after the fact that he was probably being protected to be on the inside at all times. They don't want Pence having trouble. So Pence was with the other guys. He was on the other team. And um, I don't think it was just at the last minute where he decided not to do something that could have helped Trump. I, I think he was probably a plant. It's not shocking considering the way he's talked about no. Trump since. Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. And uh, so Trump now though knows who he can trust. So if Trump got elected, I expect to see Michael Flynn in there. I might expect to see um, Doug McGregor. I wouldn't be shocked if, if Bobby Kennedy got a job somewhere. Um, I'd love to see him pick someone like Bobby Kennedy as a running mate. Oh, that would be a ticket. Do you think that would Bobby Kennedy would join up with him? I think he might. Bobby's not going to get to the White House. No, he not might as through Trump. He might through Trump. That's what, it's also like tiresome though talking about this. Like the four-year election cycle is way too quick. It's literally a two-year media event leading up to the election. And then it's like even if he does get in. Well, but he's going to be able to put. He knows where the spoons and forks are now. Yeah. Right. And I'm torn as to whether I want to see him go Green Goblin once he gets there or not. I'm not sure. Um, what's the name of that guy, that video game guy? Leroy Jenkins. Leroy Jenkins. Leroy no Jenkins. No Leroy. No Leroy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he could go Leroy Jenkins, and the, half of my brain wants to see that, and the other half says it won't be good if it happens. Well, does any part of your brain say, all right, maybe – trying to fix these systemic issues that exist in the United States is not going to happen through the white house. Like I look at what's going on yeah. here in Texas, sending the uh, state national guard to the border to secure that. Like how, how much agency do you think states need to really uh, take control of moving forward to like my whole view is like, I think states need to lead the way. Well, so that gets us that gets us to an interesting story. I'm a pro-choice guy who watched the Roe v. Wade decision get overturned, and I, even though I'm pro-choice, um, what I had been seeing leading up to that was that there were states that were pushing abortion up to nine and a half months, even later. That's the fucked up part, and I'm going no. I don't give a damn. They say, well, the mother's, the mother's life is in jeopardy. I go, you should have called it earlier. You blew that one. Um, and, uh, and as Ben Shapiro said, I listened to Ben Shapiro make the case for pro-life. Pro if anyone is smart enough to convince me he, he is, and he didn't, 
he didn't convince me, but he did say something profound. He said, there's only one bright line, that's conception. After that, it gets fuzzy. And he's dead on correct on that. So, so then the question becomes is when does a child pick up civil liberties, civil rights? Where, where in the woman? Nine and a half months, they're a person. It's zero months for me, they're not, right? But there's, I listen to a guy talk about doing a 12 week abortion, which I would have thought was just a you know, vacuum cleaner sort of thing. No, no, they pull arms and legs and stuff out, right? It's, it's, really, it's really an ugly, ugly story. So what I can say is, is that if, if you push me to go either nine and a half months or no abortion, I go to no abortion. They're gonna force me to support the other team if, if they, and, and the activists were pushing that for reasons that make no sense to me, just to cause trouble or something. So I think the Supreme Court might've gotten pushed into making that call. Now, where I'm heading with this is, there's no reason why the people of Mississippi's moral values should be the same as those from California. And I think if the state of Mississippi wants to say, look, we as a state do not believe in abortion, uh, that's reasonable to me. And you can move. Not everyone can move, but you can move. I think, I think there's a downside to it. I, I, I'm still pro-choice. But I'm not going to tell people in Mississippi that they have to do exactly what the people in California want them to do. Yeah. Because... Yeah. And by the way, I'm starting to understand Mississippians better than Californians. <laughs> right. Right? Because the, the Californians, the ones with a, a brain bigger than a walnut, have moved to Texas. <laughs> right? Yeah. They're all my neighbors. <laughs> right. Right. That's, yeah. So the state's rights model, right? Ron Paul. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Everybody can go their separate ways, do their own thing, trade with each other. So that's... Yeah. Uh, the opposite of the globalist view, except for we were talking about technocracy. Technocracy has this idea of regions. And that, that, that instead of having countries, you just have regions, which really smacks of, that's why George Soros is planting people in lower positions. Because if we go to a regional model, then those people become relatively important. Mm -hmm. And so it gets real creepy real fast. I don't want someone in Brussels telling me I can't have a steak because I've used too much carbon that month. No. But it's all getting too absurd. Again, uh, mm -hmm. maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm optimistic, but I feel like they're pushing too far. And it's like, yeah. Uh, that's like the whole, again, why I'm in Bitcoin. We just need to defund these people, take away their power, the money. So, are, so are you supportive? I, 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 I always, by mistake, do hodler podcast and then and then walk into a bitcoin debate are you supportive of the etf is that a plus or a minus uh, i know i wiggle it, like a son of a bitch i've been told my, my brother he says you wiggle so much but I, I can't stop wiggling i mean it's neutral i wouldn't recommend that people get bitcoin exposure via the etfs i think it's uh the, the least optimal way to do it and i could see so so where's the downside to it what's the um what's the um Forget about the downside for Bitcoin, but but is there risk of? Do you think the ETFs could end up just completely hosing people? No, I do think they'll have the Bitcoin to a certain extent. I mean, they could hose people if the so government. So it's not good for the sort of the 
the apocalyptic end game, right? Then you don't want to own the ETF, right? Well, it doesn't even have to get to apocalyptic. I mean, you, I can make a very strong case that Bitcoin, the network itself, enables you to do things that you can't do via uh, shares of an ETF. Like people listening to this podcast now, like they're streaming us Bitcoin, as you know. Like you're not going to be able to do that with the ETF. And I do think right. there's a strong case that could be made that the technology side of Bitcoin, the networking side, can enable these use cases that will actually force you to have direct exposure to Bitcoin to but, interact but with the, these. Here's the deal. See, the no coiners, GLD has got the same sort of problem to me. I, I, I don't think I don't think GLD has the gold, so to speak. I think, And I don't think GLD was a plus for the gold market. That's why I asked that question. So I think GLD was put into place to provide, to, to saturate demand so that people wouldn't actually try to get the gold, they would just yep. get GLD. Yeah. And so I view the ETF as potentially not good for Bitcoin. Not not necessarily bad, but not good. And, no. and, 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 and but, but here's the deal. I'm happy to own GLD. I don't own much because I, I bought all my gold as gold a lot of it um but by having the etf it allows you to have exposure to bitcoin and when you say oh you know it's getting kind of sketchy i i, I would like to have some it, it allows you to basically get the protection of e bitcoin's gains and then you say N now i'm going to switch it over to the real thing because i want to be able to do a b and c yep well, I'm not sure they switched. So, so the, as a no coiner, I can tell you the ETF is attractive. But you're gonna have to sell that share and buy Bitcoin. That you can't take in kind redemptions the way the the things no, are structured. No, I know. Now. But but if, if the guys who say, "Look, Bitcoin's going to five hundred thousand, that ETF will be a good deal. Oh yeah, no. I mean that's like the quote unquote positive is it does make it very easy to pour a shit ton of capital into Bitcoin. And comparing it to GLD, like Bitcoin, being able to verify that the Bitcoin's actually in the proverbial vault is a lot cheaper and easier. So you could. But have so 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 what will happen though is if they start doing the the ETF as a fractional reserve system, it, it then hurts Bitcoin. I think. Uh, I think it would hurt people with exposure to the ETF more well, than it Bitcoin itself. It, it, it hurts Bitcoin to the extent that it, it's, it pulls demand away from the actual coin. Right? If it I could. can buy GLD, get exposure to the price of gold without actually causing a supply-demand move, right? If, yeah, I, no, if that... I buy gold, it, it, it puts a demand on gold, which pushes up the price, maybe not much. Whereas if no, I, I buy GLD and they don't have any gold, then 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 it, it it they'll just make more shares of GLD, right? They'll just here give them some more, you know. It's like uh, it's like Nvidia was talking this year about how they they were going to offer more shares because of the eager investors. I go, it's a Ponzi scheme what you're doing, right? And they're at what like two forty two PE ratio right now. Uh, Nvidia. I, I think it's even worse than that because I think those are probably fake numbers. I think they're at fifty times revenue. Yeah, um, fifty times revenue means that they're crudely speaking about eightfold overvalue. Yeah, it's I mean, and, and indicative of of asset bubbles. But back to my biggest worry with the ETF, particularly when you juxtapose what was going on in parallel to the uh, 
to the approvals and launch last week was the Treasury and Elizabeth Warren. You know, the Treasury sent a letter to the House Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee basically saying uh, we don't want individuals to be able to hold their own keys, hold their own Bitcoin. And my biggest worry, I think the biggest risk, and again, it's not to Bitcoin, it's to Bitcoiners living in America, is that now that the ETF's out there, the Treasury will try to make a move that says, all right, you guys can have Bitcoin. We can only access it via the ETF. You can't hold your own wallets. You well, can't that's right. Go peer to peer. So, so the way, the two ways you undermine Bitcoin is to either, is to either institutionalize it to death or to try to just squash it. And the institutionalization is, is the one that seems like the, the, the path of lesser resistance. Yeah. But again, going back to getting sloppy last week was beautiful on all accounts. I mean, you had the SEC get their Twitter account hacked. Somebody sent out a tweet that announced the approval too early that moved markets. Now it's like, all right, the SEC, the, the police in this market is completely incapable of even protecting a Twitter account. Uh, what right do they do? Do they have to tell us what we can and cannot invest in? Then you have it launch and like if in the industry it was very apparent that like the actual facilitation of share creation and then buying Bitcoin was a complete shit show. Then you had Merrill Lynch and Vanguard not giving their clients access to these ETFs out of uh, just subjective a subjective view on this the my space. shock face again. Yeah, this is my yeah. shock face. It's just highlighted across the board, like the the quote unquote smartest people in the room are dumber than ever. Like they can't even coordinate a clean launch and approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, I don't think these people are as organized on the back end as they were in the past. And as many people think they are. It's almost right like a government program. It's almost like a government program. Yeah. I mean, it's technocracy. I mean, that essentially what that is, the merging of the private and, private sector and public sector, the, the big tech firms and the government, that's what's happening. And they're all, and it's just, I think it's collapsing under the weight of everything that they've built. Hmm. Do you think we're heading into a serious economic, a period of economic strife? It sure feels like it, but it, it keeps, I remember in March of 2007 feeling like the market should crack and it, and it was cracking, but it just took so long. Well, I think we're already in a prolonged period of economic strife. The question is, is that materialize in financial markets? Who knows? Well, in some sense it has. If, if, so, so what do you think, what do you think inflation has done over the last two years? If you had to give a two year inflation hike, what, what do you think it is? It's probably like 10 to 15%. I'd say 40, but 40. Yeah. The, but the uh, Chapwood index has it at like um, 18 and 13 for the two, for the two years. So it's, it's, it's around 30 by the Chapwood index. Um, Jimmy Iorio has a restaurant says over two years, the price of his supplies is up 40 in two years. And, um, which means the markets are right now sort of cresting at all-time highs. They're just, just starting to push. Could be a great double top. I'm not a technical guy, but it could be a great double top. And, um, and uh, 
Well, what it means is over the last few years, you've lost 40%. So, yeah. so the markets in theory have corrected 40%. You just, you, it's just an inflation unadjusted. It's just not tie. showing up in your, your brokerage account the way you'd yeah, expect it, it to. You, you, yeah, you feel better about it, but you go, I, you know, I paid three ninety nine a pound for sliced turkey. That's that's not a normal price for sliced turkey. Yeah. I, I, mean, I went you, to get a roast roast one day and it was two hundred and forty dollars. I go, ah, I think I'll pass on that. Yeah. I mean when you factor inflation, I mean it's obvious that inflation is affecting people directly. I mean I do well for myself and my family. I've cut back bringing coffee into the office every day. Like it's uh Yeah, I I, I, I live like a grad student in most respects. Yeah. I'm, I drive a, I drive a beater of a car. I'm happy to drive a beater. It's got to work, right? If it breaks down, it sucks. But otherwise I, I used to wonder, I'm sitting there going, you know, you're pretty well paid. You got the, you got the worst car in the parking lot at the grocery store, but I was kind of proud of it. Um, I, I can eat my, my weakness is takeout. So I'll spend, you know, 25 bucks for takeout. I, I never, ever, ever go to a restaurant where it's, you know, 75 bucks a head or anything like that. I never do that. Um, I would rather, this is my taste. If you gave me a choice of just the food, forget about the price, the food, I would rather go get a number one meal at McDonald's and French food. I like the taste of a Big Mac better than fancy schmancy shit. Yeah. I like the French food. I don't eat it that pizza, often. Pizza, pizza, right? Pizza, Barack and the Podesta brothers and I have pizza together. You know? <laughs> well, that, I mean, um, the inflation, inflation is one part of it. I've noticed personally, anecdotally, and I'm sure um, you've seen the headlines. And I've, I know a handful to a dozen people that have been laid off in the last nine months still looking for jobs. Yeah, and so then the question is, how is this happening below radar yeah there, there's there's something so odd here and you hear about the tight labor market and I go, that's not tight it's necrotic i mean there's something wrong with it there, there's something about it that's broken but it's not acting like historically broken markets um we have not yet seen a residential real estate collapse but it has to occur well the, we the have, cost though. of buying it's... a house has doubled yeah, but but if you look at commercial real estate, I mean, we haven't seen the collapse, but like look at the price. Well, commercial real estate, I think the jingle mail over the next two years is going to be spectacular. Like how bad? I think. How bad do you think it gets? Because it's starting to get like it seems like we're on the roller coaster going over the, well, the peak right now. Let's because, let's just start with simple things like malls. Malls are all dead. Um, they're not the most expensive items, right? There's not like a hundred million dollar office complex, but, um, our local mall is being converted into medical shit. And, and that's actually a, a bone of contention of mine. We're, we're going to get a ton of people blathering on about how the, how, you know, pharma's going to do well as the boomers get old and all this shit. The GDP, the component that, that, that medical care contributes to GDP is just a flawed component because what medical care represents is the cost of keeping a, de a rapidly depreciating asset on the road. So it's like having a, it's like having a, you know, a, a 1965 Corvair 
that's breaking down all the goddamn time. And, and you're saying, well, that's good for the economy. No, it's not. You know, your car's falling apart. And so, so medical care is going, is essentially a tax on society. So it's, you know, it's going to contribute to GDP, but it shouldn't, it's not product. It's not a gain. It's, it's the cost of a depreciating asset. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's where things get really daunting is when you consider all the unfunded liabilities where social security, Medicaid, mm-hmm. Medicare, and then the health of the country, the literal health of the people in this country, like the cost of well, all There's this another stuff. funny thing is everyone's pretty pissed off, right? I mean, I would say the average person is pissed off in a host of ways, right? Yes. We, if we are coming off a top, a market top, normally you come off market tops like you can't really recall this but you know coming off say the 2000 top we were euphoric as a society brave new world internet you know digital world's gonna save us everything's wonderful nothing but blue skies and also it's like oh it's not working quite right right so so what what the downturns do is kind of knock that out of you gets takes away the euphoria and, and and brings you back to earth we are coming off a top in which everyone is pissed off. Let's say you cut their retirement portfolios in half, which I believe is not only quite possible, but quite rational. Um, how, how euphoric are they going to be? And then all of a sudden, when you start looking at Biden's and all these crocs of shit in the world, they're just going to get madder and madder. You, you destroyed my life, you piece of crap. You know, so I, I think I think we're heading into a dark period, starting out dark. Yeah. That's not good. I mean, especially when you consider like the demographics Like you have, obviously, the boomers looking mm-hmm. to retire. All, all starting to retire. Both my in-laws retired in the last two years, depending wholly on their retirement accounts now. Which is scary, by the way. It's almost a phobia. It turns out you can have a ton of money, and as soon as you retire, you start shitting a pickle. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, too. uh, I don't have any more revenue. This is it. This is all I got. If this fucks up, I'm in trouble. Yeah. And then you have a subsect of millennials who are looking at their parents, like, oh, you're getting close to the grave. Like, I'm going to get all that money. That's not going to happen. Well, here's (laughs) the interesting thing. This is, and I'm not sure I've even got my brain around this correctly yet, but, um, so, so the, the, the boomers have McMansions and stocks and stuff, but, but, but in theory, to liquidate that, you have to sell it to somebody. Who's going to buy it? So what we're saying is we're going we're gonna to sell our assets to the millennials who are then going to get rich inheriting our, these assets. There's, I, I get in this sort of loop. Well, I, I think the important this. question is who's going to buy it at this price? Nobody. Like prices are going that's to That's right. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. So so if the millennials think they're going to inherit our wealth and it will be priced the same, ignores the fact that the millennials don't have any way to bid for that wealth at that price. Yeah. But then I go, okay, so let's pretend, let's not do the trade. Let's say I take my wealth, I die, and I just it just hands over. Then in theory, my son did not have to buy it from me. But somehow to turn that into usable wealth, spendable wealth, you got to liquidate that those shares of Apple and and 
the the markets are so profoundly overvalued. And this is not one in a hundred analysts that come across the TV set do a credible job of evaluating the valuations in the market. You'll get guys say, well, the markets are somewhat overvalued here. I go, yeah, 150%, you fucking numb nut. <laughs> right? And it's an easy case to make. It's not hard. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon to make the case. You just, you can look at historical fair value, and we are 150% above historical fair value. It's an easy case to make. How do you protect yourself? Okay, that's the question. I mean, obviously... Well, I think I think Bitcoin, you think gold, there's other things as well. Well, I'm not even sure about Bitcoin or gold. I, I don't even know I, when 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 you have to. So so if you so if you say the world has a debt problem, let's start with that. The world has a debt problem. You go, well, the world can't have a debt problem because for every debtor, there's a creditor, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, the world can have a debt problem. If everyone in the world thinks they're worth a certain amount of goods and services, and there's no way the world can provide all those goods and services, you've got a debt problem. So if the way I like to do it is imagine that all of a sudden, you know, the, the leaders of the nations of the world got together and said, okay, we're going to provide free health care for everybody. Well, we don't have the resources to do that. So the, the, that promise just created a debt problem. And so we have promised people, everyone thinks they are going to go off into the sunset with a wad of money, with a wad of wealth, a wad of spendability, a wad of consumability. But we don't have the ability to produce that. And, and so, it's, so that's that problem. If, if, if there's no one to buy our assets at these prices, then these prices can't hold up. I guess the question by is the like way, how quick. Well, but what if the Fed reverses rates and prints a bunch of money? Do you think they then it's inflationary, and so so the correction will be the nominal dollars will be fine, but the actual the actual wealth will not have changed. Yeah. The other thing people don't account for over the last hundred years, in which you look at the market going up, the population has changed too. And so I say the markets are up this much. I go well, the population also doubled. So you can cut that return in half. Just let's start right there. Cut that return in half because on a per capita basis, if you're growing the pie, if you're doubling the pie every 20 years, and at the same time, the population doubles every 20 years, and then you don't get any more pizza. And I, I keep I, liking the pizza metaphor, you know. Um, so, so and, and uh, a guy named Ron Grice, the chart store, actually plots the markets correct enough for normal inflation, CPI inflation, which is a total crock of shit. Um, thank you, Michael Boskin. Um, he corrects it using the M2 money supply, which strikes me as a very clean, monetarist-driven inflation correction. And over the last century, the S&P hasn't budged, corrected for M2. So the question is, is it quite possible that, that the entire capital gains of the market over the last 100 years are zero? Real capital gains. 
And then the question is, well, then what did you get for investing in? And the answer is you got dividends. And then he sent me a plot of the total returns corrected for M2 money supply, which includes the dividends. And it turns out to be 3.79% per year over 100 years. And guess what the dividends were? About 3.79% per year over the last 100 years. Now, here's the interesting part. At the beginning of the century, they were six and a half. Now they're one, one and a half. Yeah. So that's why we're overvalued. That's yet again, another example of how we're overvalued because the, the thing that provides the actual return is now 1.5%. This is, I mean, see, the economy has been structurally broken for <laughs> over a century. Well, it, it's, we've been duped. It's not structurally broken. You know, in theory, my brother, when he was an econ major when I was in high school, and I remember he said that the, uh, the economy has to keep growing to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And I would say to him, I'd say, I don't see how that's possible. That's an exponential function. And, and, and I was correct about that. Say, so, you know, trees don't grow to the sky sort of thing. So it just struck me as odd that you had to exponentially grow the economy for it to be healthy. Why can't we just produce the same goods every year? Same amount of food, same amount, let's say, say zero demographic change, same amount of food, same amount of supply, same amount, just every year, just create what we need and get to the end of the year and say, we're, we got to the end of the year. Why is that unhealthy? The reason yeah, is because we're in an inflationary world and that represents really a shrinkage. Yeah. You need more. You need more because you have to cancel inflation. And so, um, and if inflation's really been running much hotter than people think, because the other inflation I love to write about is the, is the, the inflation, the deflation, the inflation hidden by de, de, rapid depreciation. So I had a microwave go out about two weeks ago and it lasted about three years. I think the original microwave was original to the house from 1989. So if you look at the price of that microwave in 1989 that was bought and put in the house, and then you look at the one that I put in, I don't know, it must've been four or five years ago, maybe. Um, that lasted four or five years. You realize that to, to, to correct for the price of that microwave, there's a factor of five ish accelerated depreciation. And, and, and therefore it's the price of per use price. And that second microwave, I got. I, I bought a blender a year ago, and it's gone again. I had to buy another. Yeah. So that blender is not in any way comparable to the ones that lasted 40, 50, 60 years from you know World War II vintage blenders. Those would go forever. It's not showing up in hedonic adjustments either. No, we- no. They don't correct for the fact that you just bought a piece of shit. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean... New term I learned last couple of weeks, shamflation. We all know about shrinkflation. You don't right. raise the price, but you shrink the good. And this shamflation, I think is what you're you know, describing in terms of a, a microwave and a, a blender. It's happening in food too. They're not raising the price. Right. You're getting uh, but shittier they're s- food. Switching out the ingredients. Um, you're getting. Right. They're, they're learning to use more and more of the cow. And that, heaven, only know, heaven only knows what we're eating. That or it's just like addictive powders that they put in. That's right. what uh, 
I watched a podcast with this is where things get really weird because it feels like we're stuck in this vicious cycle that we can't get out of because like all these moves particularly shamflation in food where you're switching out ingredients for shittier stuff that makes people unhealthier like you try to uh, dam the hole or you try to um, put your finger in the, the hole in the dam in one spot but then like boom like by doing this you make people unhealthier and you just skyrocket healthcare costs on the back end well, the other thing that, that, you know, I wrote about it this year, I decided to lay out the case as clearly as I could, but that we, from 1981 to the present, we had so many tailwinds that will not repeat. So, so recency bias in, in, in the investor world and in the economic world, um, um, is not back to 2000. 2020 it's not back to 2009 it's not back to 2000 it's back to 1981 from 1981 the russians needed money they they sold us resources for dirt um they need desperately needed capital china came out of the dark ages and they sold us labor at slave wages that's a huge contributor that that's over the interest rates went from 15 percent down to zero percent that's a huge tale. When demographically the boomers showed up in the workforce, brought their wives with them, huge, huge economic gain. Um, and, and so the, the bottom line is we had all these tailwinds that will not repeat. And so during that time, it turns out the valuations of the market an inherently inflation adjusted phenomenon because you divide the price by something that ought to track that price. So it shouldn't move. It can wiggle, bob back and forth, get overvalued, get undervalued, get overvalued, get undervalued. But eventually it regresses to and through the mean. And all the way back to Rome, there's kind of a sort of a, 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 a gravitational pull to sort of a net gain of a few percent above inflation. And, um, and uh, during that 40 year period, the valuations of the market, valuations, not price, compounded at 3% a year for 40 years. That's a tailwind. Mm -hmm. What happens in the next 40 years when the valuations drop 3% a year for 40 years? And you say, oh, that would never happen. I go, of course it will happen. Because there will be some point in the future where we're way undervalued because that always happens. It might not take 40 years, but there will be a time when we are way undervalued. If we regress to fair value today, right? You and I woke up and we looked at the market. We said, holy shit, we just gave all that overvaluation back. What's overvaluation? Well, here's a great example. Microsoft has had a wonderful dozen years, right? That's been a good stock to own. Of those gains, five-fold are valuation expansion. So if you just give back valuation expansion, give them credit for developing and selling shit and having revenues and wealth creation, whatever, but you just contract the valuation back to where it was a dozen years ago. It's an 80% correction. Mm-hmm. And it will correct. It's not going to stay up there. Nothing stays up there. Nothing stays aloft like that. It eventually corrects. Yeah. And when it does, it's got to get back 80%. Just based on valuation, NVIDIA, factor of eight. Got to give back 85, 
And it could be worse than that. NVIDIA could become Global Crossing or something like that. It could become a bankrupt company. Yeah. Do you think this could be a catalyst for shaking the American people up? Like, yes, it will be terrible for boomers, for the millennial children that are expecting to inherit all this wealth. But do you think this is a necessary correction, a wake-up call for people to realize, like, hey, you've been living in well, so, land? So, so I, th- I think uh, I, we haven't had a real correction since 1967 to 81, in my opinion. My definition of a correction is, is two things. One is it sends prices earthward in a serious way. So when someone says, oh, that's a 10% correction. That's not a correction. You corrected nothing, right? So, and then the second thing is, is that you have to correct investors' attitudes. You got to get them to the point where they say, "Okay, I, I won't do that again." Right? That was stupid. And and we haven't had a serious correction since the '67 to '81 bull bear market, where where at the end of that, investors are saying, "I'm I'm never buying another equity." These things are a sack of shit. And that turned out to be a great time to buy equities. Great time to buy bonds, too. Um, and, and so I think the two components of such a correction, one is price and the other is time. And if we dropped 75 cents, 75% tomorrow, the dip buyers would come in and force, right? If you look, I just saw a plot of um, – Tesla, I think it was, that dropped 75% back in 2022. And it was just a V-bounce. So that 40 years was the age of V-bounces. Every time there was a serious downturn, investors ran in and grabbed it and brought it right back. So the message was clear, never sell. Just hang on, you'll be fine. And then you got the indexing and stuff. And so it says not only never sell, but buy shit without even understanding what you're buying because you're just buying an index. And by the way, if you buy an index, you're buying the most expensive stuff in greater quantity than the least expensive stuff by a country mile. And so it's like going to the grocery store and say, oh, look, prime rib just doubled. Let's buy more prime rib. (laughs) You go, that doesn't make sense. Buy some hot dogs that day. But that's not how indexing works. Indexing, you will buy more prime rib because the price is up. And so, so at some point, indexing was a good idea. And every idea, good idea, becomes a business and ends up a racket. There's a famous quote. I can't remember who gets credit for it. But, and, and the indexing has reached racket phase. And it's, it's, there's no really good ideas in, on Wall Street that then eventually become bad ideas. The system intellectually and monetarily arbitrages away the good idea. It's like a portfolio. Portfolio insurance was a great idea until 1987. Then all of a sudden it became a bad idea. And, and, and so, yeah, it's an entropic thing. And so, um, so we will, I think we will go away from indexing. I think active management will come back. Say, oh, wait a minute. Let me see if I got this right. Buying something, having no idea why you're buying it is going to go away. And buying something that you thought about why you're buying is going to come back. What an odd concept. Um, And then there's this harsh reality that bugs the crap out of me. As I say, you know, the MAG-7 carried the market or the MAG-10 or whatever you want to call it. The top few stocks, 10, let's say 10 of the the 500 stocks in the S&P carried the market. They've been carrying the market for quite a while. If you own 50 gas stations and 490 of them weren't producing any profit, what would you do? You'd sell them. 
but somehow with the indexing, you just keep buying more gas stations. And, and, and the ones that are returning the profit happen to be a metastable profit too. Um, and video is a great story because um, um, Hickey, Fred Hickey says that NVIDIA, because of the, the AI craze, Fred, uh, that NVIDIA got to sell some really expensive hardware, the desperate buyers of hardware. That desperation will go away. And once it starts crashing to earth, NVIDIA is going to become global crossing. It's going to become Sun Microsystems. It's going to become, uh, it's going to be a chapter in a textbook. The picture, you know, the picture of the CEO looks like Bill Huang. Mm-hmm. It's the letter he, that's, that's going to be the poster child of the next downturn. Picture of Bill Huang 2.0. Yeah. Um, it's a. Uh... Thinking of my life, 2001, 2008, now it seems like we're approaching what may dwarf those. 2000, whatever, yeah. Yeah. And I, I listened to some economist yesterday who I think is really smart, but he's so matter of fact. He's so matter of fact. And I was telling you about a podcast I did where I got mad. And it was the matter of factness of the podcaster, which I'd say something, you'd say, well, it's just this. And I go, but we're still fucked. Yeah. You can say it's just this, but we're fucked. Yeah. And um, and it's getting me irritated. Um, and uh, and these this, these economists say, yeah, recessions are good, and this and this. I go, this one's gonna suck. It's important. It's needed. It's called for. It's time to scrub. It's trying to scrub the barnacles off the ship. But it's gonna, it's not be, gonna be painful. Fun. Yeah. It's not going to be fun. And they, they say it like it's just just another day to go to work and, you know, because he's not going to lose his job. No, New York Times will keep paying them. Um, the, uh, well, that being said, I mean, obviously, the economy, the financial system, more specifically, is one aspect. He's, I mean, obviously, we're going through some sort of inflection point. Exactly where it ends, who knows? But do you think... Other countries in the world smell the blood in the water. Obviously, yes. we've had the BRICS plus countries really buddying up. The sanctions against Russia proved to be a pretty terrible move on behalf of the Western the allies in the U.S. and the dollar. Like, and, and that, Putin called that too. You know, if you, I did a poll one day. I said, who, who, who is who? Which leader? most is doing the best for their country. And I gave the choices were Biden, Trudeau, Macron, and Putin, I think, or it wasn't Macron. It was someone else. And Putin won 71% of the votes. Uh, Putin seems like one of the greatest leaders in the world to me. He's running a country that you have to be a, a complete beast to run. Right? This is not a country that Justin Trudeau could go up and run, right? Biden couldn't run it. You need a strong, strong fisted bastard. You need a guy who you, we would consider a sociopath to run Russia. This is a crazy place. And I think Putin has shown a real sense of nationalism. I think he's attempting to keep Russia from going off the rails. And there's people who are listening to this who are appalled by this. They say, oh, no, he's a psychopathic thug and he just murders people. And I go, no, I don't think that's true. I, he does. I'm sure a few gulags have a few guys that pissed off Putin. 
But, I, I, you know, Malice's book, another interesting thing. So after Stalin dies, there's heroes in Russia that you, you never would have thought of. Like, for example, when Stalin died, Khrushchev took over. Now, our image, my image as a boomer is Khrushchev's this leader of this evil country. In my lifetime, it was Khrushchev. When Khrushchev took over, he he talked about all the bad things that Stalin did and don't let that happen again. He spilled his guts. And I'm going, what a hero. Gorbachev comes out looking like a saint. You know, this is a tough place to run. Putin's doing a credible job running a very difficult place. And um, he pointed out that if you want to have the reserve currency, stealing people's money is not a good way to do it. <laughs> and then to to supposedly give it to Ukraine, right? If we take 300 billion of Russia's money, how much is going to make it to Ukraine? How much of the money that we're giving to Ukraine actually makes it to Ukraine? Is a whole other right. Question. You, right. No. And so, so this is one of the great grifts of the, of the modern era. Right. And then again, the podcast I did, the guy would say, well, that's just a, you know, we're just to clean out the old war equipment and stuff like that. And the rebuild. I said, well, those guys should be hung from the neck until dead. There's 500,000 dead Ukrainians because they wanted to sell more arms. Why is that not a Holocaust? Why, why you know, and the answer is because no one's ever going to get charged with any of these crimes against humanity. Well, Mitch McConnell let us know that that money is really being spent here, here in the United States. I saw that. It was very heartwarming, very heartwarming. The other one, uh, the chick from MSNBC who used to be on... Um, who, who used to be on uh, the, 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 the CNBC said it too, where the, the, this is going to build the U.S. economy. Go, okay, let's go kill some more people. <laughs> you know, I was, I, I'm, a, I'm a hawk in the sense I believe we need a strong military. I'm a dove to the extent I don't think we need to bomb the shit out of every country in the world. Yeah. And I think we're bombing the shit out of every country in the world. And, and the message is very clear. Don't piss off the United States or we will just obliterate you. Well, that, and I that's mean, bad, bad karma. It's bad karma. Well, and the brazenness with which the deep state, whoever it is, particular administrations just completely neglects the Constitution. Like the bombing of Yemen last week, mm -hmm. an act of war without permission from Congress. So they don't even but pretend. they've been doing it. They've been doing it for years. Yeah. And by the way, you know, those strikes, this is a, amazing to me. There are strikes going on inside Russia, right? They are hitting Russian targets inside Russia. Those strikes are not being done by Ukrainians. They don't know how to do that shit. They don't know how to run that equipment. Those are being done by U.S. guys, contractors, whatever. So we are bombing Russia. If this turns out badly, that's going to be an embarrassing moment. Yeah. To say the least. I mean, it already is pretty embarrassing. I mean, the fact Zelensky came out. Oh, yesterday. so I asked, I asked the, 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 the case officer yesterday in the Zoom call, I was talking about um, <laughs> pull out of Afghanistan. I said, okay, I got to ask you this. He was in Afghanistan a lot. And he said, well, we spent two years winning in Afghanistan and 18 years losing. And I asked him, I said, tell me yes or no. When we pulled out of, out of Afghanistan, 
it was so poorly done that that could not have been incompetence. That was intentional. He said completely. He said, he said, we left them money. We left them guns. We left them everything. The idea being the country's yours. Take it. Behave yourselves. And, and, and when I wrote about it, I, I said, you know, here, here's, here's the tell. The tell. The tell is that we left. I remember when Jen Psaki said we got 90% of the people out who wanted to get out. And I'm going, you know, 90% might be a good score on a calculus test, but it's not a good score in terms of getting Americans out of a war zone. And, and so we left supposedly a ton of Americans. We read no stories about Americans dying. None, right? I would have noticed them. Which means we said to the Taliban, we're going to leave you money. We're going to leave you guns. Do not piss us off and make us come back. Leave the Americans alone. And they said, yeah, we're good. We're good. We got the money. We got the guns. We don't need any more. The Americans are good. They had to have made that deal. And, 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 uh, and then people laugh at the BRICS Plus that you mentioned. And they say, oh, you know, such and such a currency wouldn't be strong. It's not about a currency. It's about new alliances. They could come up with a new brick currency if they want. That's not the important part. It's about the part that they're saying, we're now going to join China, Russia, not the United States. That is a sea change. Yeah, with Saudi Arabia in the middle. With Saudi Arabia, right? Weren't these the guys that we bribed and bribed and bribed with all of our whatever military shit to make sure that they stayed friends with us. Mm-hmm. And apparently they've now decided there's cooler kids on the block. Yeah. So this is, this, this is all very bad for the U S and, and it's deserving. Right. That's the hardest so part for people to internalize. Everybody wants yeah, to play with them. Um, it is. Yeah. I, people call you unpatriotic. Putin apologist, Xi apologist. Patriotic is calling out, call, calling out the mistakes we're making. Yeah. I'm not a Putin apologist, but do you, do, you, do you agree or disagree? I don't know. We could have stopped this Ukrainian war. I agree. I mean, it was blatantly clear. Blatantly obvious. That Boris Johnson stepped in and said no. What was In this? April 2022, said yeah. old Zelensky. And, and, and... Yeah, I bet he's got a lot of bank accounts. <laughs> yeah, the I mean, but that, uh, we're not joking about it, but we're it's only a little light. But you have to laugh it. about it. Four and a half million. You know, when million the Fed, when the Fed was struggling with the, the the GFC, right? And there were transcripts, and they were they were cracking occasional jokes, and people said, "Oh, it's just awful." No, humor disarms tension. The other thing humor does, someone said humor was aggressive. Like, oh, fuck you. Um, If I want to be aggressive, I'll just say fuck you. Um, Humor also allows you to embed an idea in a joke while protecting yourself from embarrassing yourself because it was a joke. And so you can throw out the idea as a humorous thing, but it plants the, the seed of an idea. So in faculty meetings, I occasionally joke. Sometimes I have to say, you know, guys, I'm not joking now. That's a serious comment. Um, but, but good ideas come out of jokes. There's an advertising agency that actually does that. So they bring in people from all over the company. 
they apparently have done some great ad campaigns. And the, they, they take them on a retreat for like five or six days. The first couple of days, they do stupid things like things with silly string and games and things that just get you laughing and, and break down all the social barriers. And then they start restructuring and they start making the, the games more constructive. And by the end, they're like whipping out ideas. What you've got is a bunch of people who by breaking down the barriers are not afraid to, to come up with outside the box ideas. And they go, let's make a fucking movie about sharks in a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> or a bear on cocaine. Or a bear on cocaine, <laughs> yeah. Or or whatever, you know. And I'm 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 reading Elon Musk's biography. I know why people hate Musk, but it it's an amazing story. It really is an amazing story. He he's just he's just wired on a whole nother schematic. And, 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 and it's so, it's so different. I like to ask fellow scientists, I say, tell me, tell me a famous scientist who most reminds you of you. Now they're always way better, right? So if you take a famous scientist, you go, well, none of the famous guys like me because I suck and they don't. Um, but their styles and mine is absolutely clear. It's Einstein because what Einstein would do is he'd come up with this mental construct, like imagine a train traveling the speed of light, and then it goes in something, you know, and 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 then and then he would sort of backfit it to a more rigorous treatment once, and that's the way I work. I, I work. I'm totally sort of mental construct driven, whereas Newton was just math, 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 math. Musk, I'm not like at all. He dreams so big he was trying to figure out how to get to the stars when he was a teenager and it's so funny that what he used to be as a kid like he wanted a motorbike and he'd stand there and stand there next to his dad to i want a motorbike and his dad would say no i'm not getting you one and he'd just stand there he'd say i want a motorbike and he would just stand there, stare at his dad. And after about five nights in a row, then his dad say, fuck it, I'll get you a motorbike. Just get out of my face. <laughs> and, and then he'd get a motorbike. And, and he, he was doing shit as a kid. He, he got his dad to send him to a computer symposium that was not for kids. And his dad going, this is a waste of money. So he went and got his own, raised the money to get a ticket to go to the symposium. It was a bunch of adult hackers. And his dad goes to pick him up and he walks in there and there's Elon having a discussion with three professors of computer science. And he gets to him and they said to his dad, you got to get this kid a better computer. (laughs) (laughs) And, and uh, so he was, he was wired different than everyone. And so it's, it's so easy to see how he became the guy he was. He became. And so the short sellers, I understand why they hate him because he destroyed them for starters. And he, and he, he, kept, he funded his company using Dogecoin and stuff, right? I mean, he, he did some crazy shit to, stay, to keep them at bay. But no one, no one is like him, going from PayPal to making batteries, to making spaceships, to making, the, it's, it's truly, there's a better scientist though. The best scientist of all time, Da Vinci. 
Da Vinci. You got to read uh, Da Vinci's biography. It's, I mean, it's, he was, it's just a, he was he, not an artist. He was an inventor. Yeah. He was multifaceted. And you create he, like a, a you, I mean, you wrote about this in part two, but like a direct energy weapon, directed energy weapon. Then he used like he, he invented and shit. He invented shit that was so far ahead of its time. And, and he would, his notebooks all survived because he was recognized to be so phenomenal that, that, that they preserved his notebooks. So like 50, 60% of his notebooks have survived. And he would study like the physiology of horse's lips and how the horse's lips, the muscles and stuff. And he would dis- he'd dissect bodies in the basement. You weren't supposed to be doing that shit back in 1385 or whenever it was. And, uh, he figured out how the heart worked, how the valves worked, based on hydrodynamics that was shown to be true finally in 1972. That's insane. I mean, Sem- that's, that's, that's insane. And he figured out, he, he built machines for measuring distances. He, he just, where it would, it, the wheel would turn around and drop a pebble on each rotation. In the end, he'd count the pebbles. You know, war machines. He designed all sorts of catapults and everything. So he he was extraordinary. And the funniest part, one of the funniest parts is he's talking about Michelangelo. And this turns out to be an insult. He says he paints like a sculptor. <laughs> and so here's Da Vinci hammering Michelangelo, right? And And he would paint. If I was a painter, I think I would just quit because they describe how he painted. And you sit there and you go, I just can't even fathom doing it the way he did it. There's just no way I'll ever attain that. And, and he invented perspective and he invented so much stuff. And he was just so extraordinary. I don't know how I got off in these. I'm, I'm so, mm-hmm. someone said I was so tangential. Everything is just, like, it's like, hey, like a squirrel. Hey, a squirrel. You, you did stoke a question there, which is like, um, thinking creatively and to solve problems like in your mind, what is your out of the box solution for the terrible state of the world that we find ourselves in? I think D is there a creative way. I've, I've, I've tried to bring randomness into my world scientifically. Here's some things I did scientifically. Um, I work in a very complicated field, it turns out, very complicated area of chemistry. Some people said I'd fail. Some said it's too complicated. Some, some thought they understood it. That's the most comical, actually. Um, like one day in group meeting, I walked into group meeting. I had a group of about 14 or so, and I said, here's what I want you to do. In a month, I want you to come to group meeting. I want you to give a 10-minute book report on a self-help book of your choice. <laughs> just stupid things like that. And they'd come in and someone would say, here's how to speed up your reading and whatever. Most of them blew the, the assignment. Um, and then I started this thing where, I'd, where I'd, I'd, I'd say, bring in two communications, which are really short, like two pages papers. And I wanted to keep them short. So, you, so communication formats, the one I said, bring in two communications to group meeting next week. And I, and, and then what I did was I took one of them randomly from them and I shuffled them and handed them back to the group. And so you had one that you chose and one that someone else chose. And then the following week, their assignment was 
to describe in 10 or 15 minutes why these two groups should collaborate. So I made them connect the, the two programs that were randomly chosen from the literature. I made them find the connections and then um, stuff like that. I'm a, a big, so randomness is so important to throw into the system. When I was doing Taekwondo, my first black belt test, I had figured out the challenges of the test. My first black belt test was, um, I realized there's about 20 fundamental kicks. And, and one of the things that happens at the beginning is they, they throw kick combinations at you randomly. And, and, and then you go back and forth and back and forth. Pretty soon you're stepping on your tongue. And so you're working on sort of autopilot at that point. You're working on instinct mode because you're exhausted. And so I made a grid. And I practice every combination of kick. So that there was no combination that I had not put together. I go, oh, turn and kick, reverse turn and kick. That combination works smoothly. Crash and kick, reverse turn and kick or back kick. That's a tough combination. But I couldn't be caught by surprise by two kicks being put back to back. Mm-hmm. And, and, and stuff like that. Now, we were supposed to learn Korean terms for each belt. I just took all the goddamn Korean terms for all the belts and learned it right up front. <laughs> if I took a language again, if I took a language again, I sucked at language. I hated French. It took me five years to get three years of credit. And um, the first thing I would do is I'd go to the glossary, make flashcards of every word in the glossary, and memorize them. That's a pidgin language. It's called pidgin. Pidgin English. People think it means shitty English. No, it actually means it's a it's a it's a language that has vocabulary but not syntax. And so uh, and so you, you 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 know if you're a slave, you get brought over. You don't speak any English. You learn how to say water. You learn how to say ask for things. But there's no syntax. But it's like water, food, whatever. Take it down. Um, and 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 the fascinating thing. I love linguistics. The fascinating thing is if you listen to a talk on black dialect, now I'm really just tangential shit on black dialect, not Ebonic shit, but if you listen to the syntax from the hood, um, it is most like Irish. Uh. If someone said, and it's because they put the mix and the, the, the blacks together to do shit. And the, the mix taught the blacks how to speak English. Yeah. The Scots Irish down in Mississippi. And um, yes, it's actually where my lineage come from. My, uh, my Irish really? grandmother was born in Mississippi then moved to Philadelphia. But yeah. Right. And by the way, I highly recommend any book by John McWhorter. And, and, uh, and um, he's one of the great conservative black linguists. And and his and it's you have to do audio. You read about you read about linguistics, forget it. That's stupid. You do audio, and he's got great, brilliant audio books on the structure of language and how it changes, how it evolves. It's a fabulously interesting topic. Then one day, one of my colleagues, his son is a linguist. He's on the spectrum wants to be a linguist. And I said to him, I said, would you drive to New York City if your son could meet John McWhorter? He said, oh, yeah. 
I said, I think I can help you with that. He goes, what? I go, yeah, yeah, I, I know John. He says, you know John McQuitter? I go, yeah, I've been in a few email exchanges with him. Yeah. And so I emailed John and said, would you, you know, meet up with this kid? And uh, the other thing I used to do as a chemist, and they don't, no one does this anymore. I used, to, there's the Journal of the American Chemical Society. And to be broadly based, for about a five-year period, I read every introduction to every paper. That's where you say, this is what's important, this is what's not known, this is what we're going to do, this is what we've done in the past, this is where we're going in the future. That's what the introduction has. I read every, you know, biophysics, chemical biology, you name it, you know, quantum mechanics, you name it. I read every paper, every full paper introduction. So that to, just to, to spread myself as far as you can possibly spread yourself. In the hope of being able I to do. connect dots or? Yeah, with, with the hopes of seeing connections that I otherwise wouldn't see, being, being aware of what's out there. And then I ran out of time, you know, the group got bigger and I got married and things like that. And then I just didn't have the time to do such frivolous things. But I was a voracious consumer of the literature. Hmm. So injecting more randomness. Injecting randomness. Yeah. Give, give chance uh, an opportunity to rear its head. Um, Because you will, you will construct a narrative. You'll construct a path that's, that's biased. So you need some opportunity to, to just bring chance connections. Yeah. And then, and then you have to have the brains to spot the connection. Yeah. And, and, um, and people often ask, you know, chemistry, economics, which is the two connections I was searching now the geopolitics comes in. Um, how do they interact with each other? And, and, um, one thing that I learned in chemistry is, is in the field I was in is that no one got anything correct. It, it, they were trying so hard to get it right. And it was just a hard field and they didn't have the tools. And, and, and almost every paper we've ever published has shown someone was fucked up. And in some cases it's spectacular. Some cases it's Nobel prize winning work where you go, it's not right. And, um, and, um, and, uh, when I got to economics, it gave me one thing, one skill that very few people have, and that is I can look at 10 central bankers who all agree, and I can say, I think you're all wrong. There's very few people who can, who can, um, who can look into the eye of credentialed experts and say, I think you're full of shit. Yeah. That takes, that takes a special kind of chutzpah. And I don't have the chutzpah, but I just have so much experience in finding that people are wrong. And, and, and this idea that something, because it's logical, is right, is absurd. There's all sorts of things. There's, there was an example of something that everyone in the world seems to agree. And one day I'm looking, I'm going, this is just wrong. And it wasn't even in my field. It was a very physical field. And I said, this is just wrong. And so I asked, and I, and I figured out how stupidly wrong it was. And I asked about 200 chemists, including a number of Nobel Prize winners. And I'd say, why is this occurring? They'd give me the answer. I said, no, it's the opposite of that. And I'd show them why. And not a single one could refute my theory. And it was just from seeing a connection that everyone else had just accepted. It sounded so logical. 
And when I just sort of flipped it upside down and said, look at it this way, you go, now it doesn't make sense at all. And, and I still liked it. I still do everything. You know, I'm at what's called a kineticist where you plot concentrations of things versus time. It's just that simple. And I read plots. I don't do math. I watch the curves. I go, okay, that's telling me that curve yeah. is telling me something. You had one of these in on narratives in the year in review, right? One year I talked about a, a couple of chemical examples of something. I think that was last year. Yeah, not, I think not in the 2023, 2022. I think in part one, you had this chart of like the narratives over time and like how they were pronounced at certain points of time. I'm miscorrecting. Maybe I read that somewhere else. I don't know. Let's but, um, but it's really helpful to not believe experts to not. Yes. And, and then, and then you got the douchebags who quote Occam's razor incorrectly. So Occam, by the way, there's about four ways to spell Occam. Let's start with that. But um, Occam's razor is often cited as the simplest explanation is most often correct. Mm. And if that was really Occam's razor, Occam would be considered 100% full of shit. 100%. The simplest explanation is never correct. It's almost never correct. When you dig below the surface, you find complexity every single time. What Occam said is you can't go complicated without more data. You have to go with the simplest explanation consistent with the data. But he and didn't then, say you can't, you can't think about what else it could be. But you can't invoke complexity that's, that serves no purpose in the model. So you can't just start adding shit that doesn't do anything for your, for your explanation. But everything we've ever studied, anything I've ever said, whether it's economics or whatever, Occam's razor, if, if it was the simplest model's most correct, it would be wrong every time, every single time. It's the base from which to build right. more complex. So, yeah. so you start out with a couple of data points, you come up with a simple hypothesis, not a complex one, a simple one. And then you collect some more data and you go, oh, it just got more complicated. And yeah, it reminds me, here's a great example of economists blowing it badly. You might not remember this, but I'm sure you've read it, that when stagflation showed up, the economists were all shocked. They didn't think stagflation was possible. And I'm sitting there thinking about it, I'm going, okay, let me see if I got this right. Because we have inflation, your money can only buy half of what it used to buy. How is that not a stagnating economy? How could that not be a stagnation? Well, so why buy... were the economists so surprised? If you only buy half of what you need, the producers will go out and produce more. They neglect right. the producers stag... have costs but too. Stagflation. Inflation is inherently stagnating. You oh, yeah. want to promote the economy. Don't have inflation. No, deflation is the boogeyman of modern day cases. Well, it's, it's the boogeyman for several reasons. One of which is it's not taxable. Yeah. If, 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 if we have deflation year after year after year, then, then there's no capital gains to tax, right? They can't keep ramping up the tax bill. And so, so, so inflation gives them something to tax. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, this is like a perfect example of one problem where people think they've solved it. Monetary economics. And you just point it 
the opposite. Like, what if we went the other way and actually tried to induce deflation via sound money? <laughs> so I love deflation. Uh, I would love, I'm hoping for deflation. When I was a kid, my dad, we used to have these conversations. It was really good. My dad owned a, a construction company. And so I'd sit at the dinner table or something and say, well, I think everyone should be paid the same amount. And he would explain to me why that's a stupid idea, right? And it was quite straightforward. I go, oh, okay, I hadn't thought of it that way. So we had great, great, great conversations, which he straightened out the putty-headed thinking of an eight-year-old. Um, and, um, and, and, and so that, that helped me a lot. And then... And there's people who've argued with me on this, but one day I was thinking about the Roth IRA. This goes way back, actually. And I realized the Roth IRA has got a mathematical flaw in it. That's a big gaping hole. It turns out that if you take $1,000, track $1,000, let's say the tax rate's 20%. In a, in a regular IRA, you put your $1,000 in an account, doesn't get taxed. Let's say it goes up tenfold over time. It's now, it's now $10,000. You take out the tax when you pull it out at the end, you've got $8,000. So you made $8,000 from $1,000, right? You made 7,000 from 1,000. You have 8,000 at the end. If you use the Roth IRA, if you take out 20% up front, you've now got, instead of, a thousand, you have 800, goes up tenfold. At the end, is tax-free. You've got $8,000. It's the same. So there's no mystical tax-free compounding. It's fourth grade math. <laughs> if you get taxed 20% in the front end or 20% in the back end, it's the same. A lot of people don't notice this. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The regular IRA, which was a very far-sighted concept, the government basically said, look, we will forfeit our VIG and we'll get it years from now. What government does that? That's an extraordinary thing to say, we will forfeit the revenue now, we'll get it later. What, what an amazingly generous way to go about life. In a regular IRA, let's say you make 150,000, which turned out to, at the time that I figured this out was a five percentile income. In the regular IRA, you take say $1,000 off the top, and you put it in the IRA, you don't have to pay taxes on that. It goes in the IRA compounds, you pay taxes at the end. In the Roth IRA, you take that $1,000 off the top and you pay taxes. Now, here's the deal. That $1,000 in the Roth IRA is in the top tax bracket, 37%, something like that you voluntarily pay 37% taxes to get it into the shelter. The regular IRA, when you take it out at the end, it comes out over all the brackets. So instead of coming out at the marginal rate of 37%, it comes out first at zero and then at 10 and then blah, blah, blah. And the, the effective tax rate turns out to be integration over the whole bracket. And so usually the effective tax rate first, the marginal is about 10% lower. So the regular Roth IRA, by definition, 98% of the time, it will be at a lower tax rate. Now you say, well, what if taxes go way up? I go, but that's an unknowable. And what if they go down? 
you know, you don't know. So the point being is, is that by voluntarily paying the marginal rate up front with the Roth and forfeiting the effective tax rate at the end, you're over, you're overpaying taxes. <laughs> Your returns are lower. And everybody's so been psyoped. Everyone's been psyoped. So I, <laughs> I tell my friends this, and they start going through spreadsheets and shit going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Then one day I'm talking to a money manager and he's there with a lawyer in my office. And, um, and I'm explaining it to him. He's not quite getting it. And the lawyer starts explaining it to him. So it's clear. I'm going, the lawyer got it. He understood. So I gave a talk in front of 500 people, 500 money managers and investors in Vegas one day. And I said, look, if I'm wrong, tell me. I gave a half hour talk, which I laid out the whole case. I said, if I'm wrong, come and tell me. No one did. Everyone said, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. And I asked a money manager, why do you sell Roth IRAs? If someone says open an IRA, 98% of the time they'll say a Roth. Yeah. And, and, and I said, why? And, he, and the guy says, you know, he says, instinctively, I kind of knew there was a problem here. Now, what bothered me at the front end of the discussion was, I said, the government's saying, let's take the revenue now, fuck the future. Whereas the, reg the, the Roth says, take the money now, let's fuck the guys in the future. Whereas the, the, re the regular IRS says, we'll forfeit the money now, the guys in the future will get the money, which is a whole lot better. So that's what I had an allergic reaction to the Roth. The Roth appeared at precisely the time when Clinton was scraping to get the balanced budget. He needed revenue. So what did they do? They opened the Roth and they said, by the way, if you want to roll over your IRA into a Roth IRA, you have two years to do it. And that's how they balanced the budget. Now, here's the interesting thing. Let's say I have a million dollars in an IRA and someone says, oh, you can roll it into a Roth. That money's not only going to come out in the top tax bracket, it's going to drive it to the pinnacle of the tax brackets. So it's going to be taxed way the fuck up there just to get it sheltered for just, no fucking reason whatsoever. Just to get it sheltered in a worse so here's, here's Here's the take-home lesson of this little story. If you read about Roth versus regular, if they do not mention marginal versus effective tax rate that those are the two things you want to watch for so here's what you do you have someplace like fidelity and you read about the roth versus the regular and what you get is mumbo jumbo where they say well you know it kind of depends on your tax situation blah 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 which is a way of saying the roth's bullshit but we can't quite say that and we want to sell you iras no matter how you get them so we'll sell you the red corvette and um and then one day, one of my colleagues says, I found it. I found your analysis. Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I don't your, know why. Did somebody make a no. post of your analysis or is it? No, I don't think so. Independently. I, I don't think it's that conclusion. hard to figure this out. Now, there are other advantages. So, for example, I track a fixed thousand. And it gets complicated when you, there's other things about inheritance and shit like that. And I go, but I don't care. I just want to track a thousand dollars. And most people don't max everything out. And it depends on your income when you retire. So if you've got a massive income in retirement, the Ross coming out at the, the regulars coming out in a high tax bracket anyways. So there's things like that, but it's interesting because most people have not even thought about that component. They just said the Roth is good. They were told the brand. Roth is good. Roth so was... get a Roth IRA, get two vaccines and a booster, <laughs> right? 
Inflation's good for you. Inflation's good for the economy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's where it, Deflation's like, oh, bad. Like, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but since I've been in Bitcoin since I was in college, like, I don't even think about that stuff. Like, I just use Bitcoin as my savings vehicle. and The thought of right. having to think what's of... The, what's the situation? Now, if you spend Bitcoin and it's appreciated, do you have a complicated tax story? Yeah, you got to pay capital gains tax. You got to do the cost basis and all that. Well, um, do you end up with a nightmarish tax return? It, I don't spend like crazy amounts of Bitcoin. No, no, no. So, but let's say let's say you spent you know two 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 purchases a day for the year. You got seven hundred ish transactions, all of which involve appreciated Bitcoin at different prices. How how does that get handled on your taxes? You do you do LIFO FIFO counting on the inventory of the Bitcoin. Um so you kinda of average it somehow. Yeah. And then you take the appreciation of when you first got it to when you spend it. And then you pay the cap gains long term, short term. On that. That's why I try not to spend Bitcoin when I don't, unless I ask, absolutely need to. Um, but I think because that's... Because of that. Yeah. That that needs to change. It's ridiculous. What if, what if they don't change it? Uh, that's a good question. Well, the then gains. it becomes... That becomes the state again, right? This now becomes yeah. the battle of the state where they say, oh, by the way, if you spend your Bitcoin, we're going to get you. Yeah. No, that's the whole point. Like the state needs to be completely disintermediated. <laughs> These I know. people. I, I agree. The they, battle of the bastards will take place. I, yeah. I just, and you know, the reason These people don't have a, yeah, this, these people don't have a leg to stand on or I mean, in the beginning of this conversation, a lot of them involved with pedophilia. They're not good. At, I'm thinking of buying the ETF to get all your thousands upon thousands of acolytes who have these laser eyes poking at me. I'm thinking of buying some in the ETF just so I can say, okay, I'm a hodler now. Leave me alone. <laughs> I think they would, uh, uh, I, they would not leave you alone. They would say, that's not the way to buy Bitcoin, Dave. Here, go to the service. I know. I know. I know. Still but early. They would, at some level, be full of shit, though. Because if uh, I can convert that into real Bitcoin as it gets dicey, then, then in theory... Right. I think that back to the GLD, I can have GLD exposure to gold. I I've got a lot of physical gold, but I, I can have GLD exposure to gold. Say, ah, now's the time to turn that to real gold. Yeah. The, um, yeah. I think it's gonna, I mean, we've been talking about, they're going to have to debase the dollar. I don't think they're going to objectively default on the debt. So there's going to be crazy mm -hmm. debasement mm -hmm. on a long enough timeline that leads to hyperinflation. I do think, mm -hmm that'll force the hand of the ETF where people have the Bitcoin ETF. They're going to be like, Hey, I'm not taking dollars for this. Give me the fucking Bitcoin. So let's pretend that neither gold nor Bitcoin are on the table. What else, how else would you protect yourself? Let's let's the godlers and the hodlers. I have a pretty good beat on, on how to deal with the debasing dollar. I think, I think they're both correct. And, and it's a very generationally distinct thing. There's some old guys who like Bitcoin, but, but it's, it's very generational. <clears throat> um, 
So, so let's take those off the table and say, okay, what else would you do? <laughs> Bullets, land, seeds, and livestock. I mean, that's. Well, hard assets then. Yeah. Hard assets, maybe uranium. I think nuclear is going to come. I've got a, um, Gehring and Rosenschweig have a, um, let me find this for you guys. I have been for years now shopping for money managers who I think have the right idea. And the plug goes, so I think the guys at Horizon Kinetics are good. I think Gehring and Rosenschweig, I'm about to give you an ETF, uh, uh, a fund. God, I keep going the wrong fucking site. A fund that I think these guys know what they're doing. Oh, the markets are having fun today. Um, are they? Yeah, they're red. Um, but they're not red. They're, the markets are so high now that it takes a real red day to do any damage. Um, so Gehring and Rogerswhite, G-R-H-I-X. These are a couple of guys who... Um, who understand the uranium small caps and stuff really well and the hard asset type stuff really well. So my exposure to uranium is through Gehring and Rosenzweig, G-R-H-I-X. There's a guy who does small caps named Eric Cinnamon. And he is, um, he had, he both takes money in and invests it as well as he has is the mutual fund. It's one of these dual things. You want the mutual fund to have a ball. And I do the mutual fund. And that's PVCMX. That's Palm Valley Capital Investor. And what he's really good at is waiting until he sees the whites of their eyes. So he listens to hundreds of conference calls a year and, and, and all these little micro caps and shit that no one else is paying attention to. And I've sent him ideas I thought were clever. And it's clear to me that he's very selective about what he even pays attention to. And, and he seems to be pretty invested right now for reasons that aren't quite clear to me. He was 80% cash for quite a while. And now he is, now he's still U.S. government 75%. He's 75% cash. If you look at the chart, it's a really telling chart. Because if you look at the maximum chart of PVCMX, um, you can see it's dead flat at the beginning of the fund. So he had a small cap fund that he, he abandoned back when it, things were nuts. He said, I'm out now. Um, and then he reopened it, I think, getting ready for something. And his chart is flatter than a pancake, which I think is because he owned nothing. And then the 2020 dip appeared. And you can see that he bought the dip and he bought it a, a little early, but then he he made money coming out and then he went back to cash. So I'm paying this bastard for patience. What happened this He's year? I'm looking at it right now. Uh, something happened there and I don't, he must've had a position in something that um, blew up. Then it looks like a distribution or something to me that there's yeah. something odd there. That doesn't look, that's not a drop. That could even be a, a are you looking at Yahoo or something? Uh, Google finance. It could be a glitch. I have Philip Morris or, and, and I have tobacco stocks. And one of them has this gigantic glitch. And somehow it was like a split that didn't get corrected on the price chart. So it just shows up as cutting in half. Um, so there's something went on there. Like he, 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 he did, did something with the shares. I don't, I don't know what, but um, there's no chance that was just a bad day. I, I don't think. 
I should send him an email. He's very responsive. Um, so on December 20, it's the end of the year too. So it's December 27th, it's at 13, and all of a sudden it's in the 12s very fast. Um, it's about 5%. So I, it, it, December 28th, heaven only knows. Nothing happens during that window. So there must have been some sort of readjustment or something. Yeah. Um, but I like that guy. And so that I found three money managers that I like. And when it's time to start buying, I'm not a stock picker. I've had luck doing it, but that's all it is, is luck. It was, you know, a lucky guy in a bull market, right? That's no brainer. But when, I'm dozen. not a good. Well, everyone looks like a genius in a bull market. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I keep fishing. Um, I bought Jaguar mining on the advice of some incredibly smart guys like James Grant, they got that, they got his ass kicked, just <laughs> royally kicked, looked cheap. And I talked to Rick rule one day and he said, ah, their org grade's not holding up. And I go, Oh fuck. You know, this is why I shouldn't pick stocks. I should not pick stocks because I, I what advantage do I have picking a stock? So I keep it simple. You just buy Bitcoin. Hold Bitcoin, buy gold, hold gold. If that well, I, I do fancy. think if we can get some whooshing, I do think the commodity cycle is a correct model. I, I do think that, that, that commodities are going to have a potential decade or more run. I caught the entire commodity cycle in 01 up. That, I, that, that was tremendously fortunate. Um, I think energy is, but, I mean, obviously it's a commodity, but like energy is probably going to outperform. Not that I'm right. some expert, but just intuitively makes sense when you look at the state of the energy markets globally, what's happening in Germany, what's even happening here. We're repeating the mistakes of Germany with our solar and wind expansion. Just so here's the question. So so I have two sort of thoughts. One is it seems like the drillers and stuff have to have a job because they're going to have to start drilling again. The other, though, is, is that because of the politics, I think you might want to buy a company that operations like a royalty trust that already has the fields and the permits and everything and just pumps money. And I'm not sure. Maybe they're both right. Maybe they're both right. I don't know. But so my sense is you want to buy a company that's already passed all the hurdles. And, and, and as the price of energy goes up, they just make more money. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I'm, uh, I think if you just, I think, I think if you went into Fidelity and bought what turns out to be, they have about a half a dozen resource related funds, which I own them all at a, at a level that I care about, but it's not life changing. As I like to say, um, my gold purchases were somewhat life changing, but, um, back when it was two ninety an ounce, um, the amount of energy I own right now is not life changing. It's hard to be life-changing the older you get, by the way. I had a friend who was worth quite a chunk of money, and I said, well, how much gold do you want exposure to? He said, I don't know, 5%. I told him how much you'd have to buy, and he was like, <laughs> because when you convert it 5% into dollars, you go, oh, that's a fuck ton of money. Yeah. When you're young, it's like, oh, yeah, 5%. Well, I'll take $200 and put it into gold. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, uh, but when you're a boomer, you know, it, not, it starts feeling real. Yeah. And, uh, I still don't, 
I still don't know what's going to happen to the boomers when these markets correct. We're going to take care of you. We're going to bring you guys into our homes. We're going to multi. So you're going to buy our McMansions. You're going to buy our McMansions. We're not buying them. We're just moving in. We're just moving in, taking the master bedroom. And, uh, well, yeah, I know. I know. I know. I also have as a goal, neither of my kids are what I call huge breadwinners. One's a professional violinist to give you an idea. And the other's got a credible income, but he's got three kids and you know, that drill. And, uh, so I'm not just saving and investing to make sure I will keep eating until I die of natural causes. Um, but I, I, I do want to leave a bit of a wad and, uh, you know, a, a, a life changing bit of a wad. Yeah. Which is admirable, which is, I want to do that too. For my well, I should be able to, I should be yeah. able to, if I don't blow it, I'm there. I mean, if I don't blow it, I've done the math and, I, they they might not be stinking rich, but they're 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 going to have a silver lining on my death. You know they're going to say, well, you know, on the bright side, um, yeah. So they yeah. will they will get a wad. No, in all seriousness, though, um, I do believe that's going to be a trend. If this multi-decade bear market, which you're talking about uh, in the year review piece. Uh, materializes like I do think there's going to be like a forcing function where families are literally going to have to we're not going to be doing old people homes anymore you're going to have multi-generational housing yeah yeah and then at first will be considered a defeat it'll be a you know the kids are living in the sofa in the basement sort of model right but then what will happen is it will become just a positive aspect of society because, you know, in, in an agrarian society, uh, an evolutionary biologist once talked about, there's no reason to live past a certain age because you need grandparents to teach the parents how to raise kids. You need grandparents to take care of the kids while the, the parents are in the fields. But you don't need great-grandparents. They're extra. They're useless eaters. And so that's why the life expectancy includes provisions for for kids, parents, grandparents, but, but you don't need great grandparents, but, but so, so in a modern era, great grandparents will alleviate the need for daycare, right? They, they will, uh, by, by living (coughs) under one roof that will alleviate the need for assisted living in theory you know, at least cut it way back. And, and it's much more efficient. And it's much more humane. It, it's much more humane. And, you know, when we locked down, I locked down with my son and his main squeeze. We had a wonderful time. We'd sit up until 10 o'clock at night at the dinner table, just talking about shit. And, and it was just, it was really a great, and there were people who blew that. They didn't use it as an opportunity to come back together. Yeah. And they just stared at the four walls. And crazy. that was a, a fundamental mistake. And so we got together. And the only thing that made it bad is that was the, that was the months that I got canceled at Cornell. And so I was getting the <laughs> crap kicked out of me. And those pig fuckers um, made life a little more miserable than it should have been. Yeah. No, I, mean, I don't think it lasted long, but it felt like it did. We're fortunate to... Uh to experience this at least three months of the year in the summer. We live with my wife's parents 
at their shore house, her sister. There's like 12 of us in the house. Oh, that's it's fun. Pretty yeah. much straight. It's a lot of fun. I mean, my family doesn't, we all go to the same shore town. My cousins, aunts, uncles, all do the same thing. Their kids. Well, Thanksgiving, for example, in my house, we had eight people, nine people and eight dogs in my house. It was it's a great feeling. Yeah. That was a great feeling. There's just dogs everywhere. They were just having such a wonderful time. Kids everywhere. You know, it just, it was just, so I think, I think, you know, single generation housing will tend to go away. It won't go away completely, obviously, but it'll tend to go away and it'll be a net plus. It'll be a silver lining. Rito, and any of you out there listening who may not have the best relationship with your family, maybe extend an Patch it branch. up. Patch it up. By the way, my, my mother, my mother, my, my wife, there's Freudian slip. My wife's, <laughs> my wife and her mother had a somewhat strained relationship. And then my wife said, you know, as she got older, she's obviously not too far from her going to the light. And she said, can she live with us? I said, yeah, sure. No problem. And, uh, she only survived about six more months, but it was so important for my wife. That six months was really just incredible for them to, to, to spend it. She was kind of bipolar and shit like that. So there was some damage to be repaired and stuff like that. And, uh, and, yeah. and, and, and so I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. We're experiencing this too. My family, I'm, uh, Lost my father last year, and his mom, my grandmother's still around. How, how did he she, die? He had a heart attack. Um, Vaccine related or no? I don't think so. It, okay. It's a story. I'm not ready to tell it on the show. I'll tell you. Okay. Um, okay. Off air. It's pretty fucked up. That's but fine. Um, no, my grandmother, she's like in her late 70s. She had a heart attack this year as well. Um, maybe vaccine related. I'm not sure. But she's living with my mom now. I know my mom stresses her out a lot, but I've seen her. We were home for Christmas, and my grandmother, I think it's really good for her, particularly at mm-hmm. this stage of her life, to be close to family. And my brother's in town, and they hang out, and she gets a lot of joy out of all of it. It's important. Well, you know, occasionally, I, I, one time I watched Howard Cosell get interviewed, illustrious career. I never quite understood why it was so illustrious. He always struck me as not as good as he seemed to be said to be but nevertheless a very illustrious career and and he, he was dying of cancer and and someone said well as you reflect back on your career and he said it all seems so stupid and i i go what and and he said it just seems silly it just seems stupid what i did and i i i watch this i go don't find yourself in that situation whatever you do 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 what you got to do to not look back and say I, I squandered my time. Yeah. And uh, I I think I think that might be somewhat of an inevitable feeling at some level where you go, you know. So so I've I tell people go boot up deathbed regrets. Just Google it deathbed regrets. And, and, and find out what people say they regret as they're on those final days. And none of them will say, I wish I'd cleaned out my inbox and my email, you know, <laughs> that, that, that none of them will say, I wish I'd done this. And, and 
the common one is, yeah, I wish I spent more time with my family. That's obvious. But um, one of the ones that kind of clicked was um, someone said, I wish I hadn't worked so much. Now, I love my job. So I don't think I would say that. I don't think I'd get there. I, I really, for me, heaven is being in my office on a Sunday morning with my dog at my feet. One of my dogs at my feet. And I, I just, this is my man cave. So I, I've always loved my job. So I don't think that'll be my problem, but my wife has health problems, serious health problems, spectacularly fascinating health problems. Actually, her most recent world record performance was she broke her neck for the second time on December 5th, 2022 for the second time. And then she broke her neck for the third time on December 8th, 2022. She <laughs> fell and broke it a totally independent break three days later. And I was worried about brain injury at that point. I it never crossed my mind. She broke it again. She was in a neck brace. I mean, she had the whole neck thing. She broke it again. C1. It's a, it's a death shot normally. But I think she's fragile enough that it, she could, a low concussion fall could produce a break. Most people who break C1 really got their head wrenched. <laughs> so they die. My She's a bit of a mess now. She's had 60 surgeries. I mean, now, where's the silver lining in this? Well, the silver lining is, is that I think because of ambition, I would have had tough time getting myself to pull away from my career enough to raise my kids correctly. And it turns out that, you know, I was forced to, right? That it was not, not a decision. Yeah. Your family needs you, you go, you do it. And, and I stepped up. And what's really interesting is if you look in my life at the periods of time where things were really busting loose, you know, where, you know, she's totally fucked up and she had her spine fused at one point, just everything, everything's a mess. If you look at my career path and you look at my papers, my publications, my group, whatever, you can't see an effect. You can't say, oh, see that, that, that period where all hell was breaking loose at home you can see it over here in his professional career as lower productivity. No, what I learned how to do is say, fuck it. There's things that matter and things that don't. You got to teach, you got to write grants, you got to write papers. The rest of the shit's noise. Don't go to seminars. Don't go, don't, don't do shit. My colleagues were very good about don't ask Dave to do shit. He's got his hands full. Um, and, uh, and so I took all my, my kids to all their sporting events, all their concerts and everything. And it's, it was just such a silver lining. And we'd go skiing and you're sitting on, you're sitting on the chairlift with your son. And it's just you and your son. And you talk about shit because it's quiet. And there's no one there to interrupt you when you talk about life and stuff like that. And so the real silver lining was is that I had incredibly meaningful time with my kids because my wife was fucked up. And, and for me, it was a win. And so I, you know, I, I tell people, you know, you're going to enjoy your kids for about 12 years and then they become teenagers and you're going to spend the next six years saying, what did I do to be treated like this? <laughs> <laughs> What, what, what did I do to make that little bastard hate me? You know, that sort of thing. And I, I actually didn't have that problem, but it's not rare. The teenagers are a handful. Um, my son and I were doing, my older son and I were doing Taekwondo together when he was in his teens. 
and it was confusing to him because the, he had he really looked up to the Cornell kids who we we'd work out with and they really looked up to me so I was, I was sort of like a poor man's Michael Jordan type where, where <laughs> Michael Jordan's son looks at his father and says well everyone in the world thinks this guy's God so somehow I guess I should respect him you know I don't know I know he's um, pissing the mugs at home I don't know what everybody else sees in him I'm like yeah 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 so in any event my advice is make sure you take the time to spend with your kids you get about 12 really meaty years and then you get you get about six more that are hormone infested crazy and i i never had a daughter so i don't know but i suspect they make you pay dearly <laughs> that's what i heard you know when you talk to parents of daughters they say oh no she's a good kid and they go that's faint praise <laughs> that means down deep she's a good kid superficially Total, total shithead, right? <laughs> Girls are easier and in the beginning, harder in the end. That's what I hear. That's exactly right. So they learn how not to wet their pants. They learn to read faster. They learn it. You know, I saw that one time in an after-school play where first the girls did a play. It was they were kindergarten girls, and they're up there chattering with each other with teacups and shit, doing their play. And then they brought the boys out. They just rolled around the ground making gurgling noises. <laughs> <laughs> I go, this isn't even close to fair. They're just, they're, they're different species for Christ's sakes. And, and then, you know, my son was in remedial reading, despite the fact he's smarter than the son of a bitch. And his remedial reading class of 28 kids were all boys, hundred percent boys. And, and so, you know, the young boys, they're pissing in their pants too long. They're, you know, they're just, they're just a handful. But then as teenagers, it becomes like the movie Ben-Hur. You see Ben-Hur? Yes. You remember when he's in, in the prison, nasty Roman prison, I think? Yep. And they say, well, we slide the food under the, under the door and it keeps disappearing. So we think he's alive in there. And then they, <laughs> they pull him out after uh, 10 years in prison or something. And, uh, and uh, that, that's sort of boys. They'll go into their man cave. And if you don't want to have a fight, just don't go in their man cave. Right? Yeah. Just leave them in there. And uh, the girls will come out of theirs looking for a fight. They, okay, that suck. Right in your face, right in your face. You know? Yeah, that's what I've, um, my oldest is almost four. He turns four next month. We've started, uh, we started doing secret, uh, secret treat outings. Just me and him. When the youngest is napping. You okay. have to do that. You have to do that. Yeah. We've been going. We've been picking a new burger spot once a week. Going, sitting down, talking. It's fun. It is fun. And when they, to me, the most interesting period of all was about eighteen months, where they start talking. Uh, it's my youngest. He's eighteen months, and he's starting to talk. It's hilarious. And it's it's the shit that comes out of their mouths. And my my son was a savant on this funny shit. I, I used to tell the class stories, and you know, one day we're sitting there in the the mall, and some woman walks by, and. And he turns to me and he says, Tampax brand tampons, a woman knows what a woman needs. I go, <laughs> what? What? Where'd that come from? You know, we got to turn that TV off. You know, that's a, it, it just, he just, one time some woman drives by and honks and he says, who's that? We we're eating an ice cream cone. He says, who's that? And I said, oh, that's Barb. You know, your, your babysitter, that's her mom. And he says to me, does she like you? And, you know, talking to him was like playing ping pong. Your job is just get it back over the net. 
So with a totally straight face, I said, yeah, all women like me. And he turns to me, he says with a big grin, he says, so you think you're sexy, huh? He's like three <laughs> years old. And, and, and then he said something, and my wife blamed me for teaching it to him. I said, he's going to daycare, for Christ's sakes. This is where he's getting all his shit from. Um, he was a brilliant artist when he was young. His daycare, there's a kid in daycare who ended up being a professional artist. And the kids could color like you wouldn't believe in a small daycare. And I come up one day and he's, he, he loved horses, obsessed over horses, obsessed over horses. Um, I'm going to show you something. Um, and I, he's drawing horse heads, just horse heads. And I say, what's with all the horse heads? And he says, well, he says, he says, the head's the hardest part to draw, so I, I draw them until I get one right, and then I finish it. I'm going, holy fuck. Is that kid? He's three years old when I'm he sorry. drew. Oh, wow. He was, he was three years old when he drew those bunnies. What? He was, yeah. This is the most amazing. This is actually truly extraordinary. I saw this, and I said to my wife, did he trace this? What, where did this come from? That was preschool. Now, I said, Thomas, those are amazing. And he says, he points to the good one. He says, that one's really better. <laughs> and uh, Damn, now I'm like, and, my son can't even color in, color in the lines yet, let alone. That's a good horse. Well, I, that's a good horse. Yeah, that's a, that's a fucking good horse right there. You can tell from the handwriting. I have a horse. I it, like the a, horse. It's a, it's, it's a young horse. Yeah. So handwriting yeah. shows how old he is. That's not a sixth grader. Yeah. So we had him tested when he was reading poorly. And the reading teacher was convinced he was learning deficient. And I'm sitting there patiently letting her spew this shit. And I finally got the end after she's saying all this shit. And we'd had him tested. And I said, I got to confess, the kid you're describing is a completely unfamiliar kid to me. I said, the kid that I know is phenomenally intuitive, phenomenally bright. And he, he's got a huge vocabulary, huge. Cause I'd use a big word and he would stop me and say, what's that mean? And I'd explain it to him. And then finally the shrink says, let's, let's look at the test results. He tested 99 percentile on everything except reading. They had a, a coloring one where they, it was like the shape of a house, but it was abstract. And a very clever experiment. They give the kid different color pencils and then they mark, make a legend so they can see which lines the kid drew first, which he drew second. So it was a problem of taking a complex picture, breaking it into components correctly. And she shows the picture he had to draw and then she shows his picture. They're identical. And she says, that's an adult level performance. This was in first grade. And, uh, and, and, and he scored 99 percentile. She said his biggest problem is going to be when he can't do something easily. He will probably get frustrated. And that's exactly what happens. So when he is competing in concerto competitions, if he didn't win, he would get pissed off. But he was always he was a brilliant underdog. He was better as an underdog because his expectations would be down. 
and then he'd excel like crazy. Seabiscuit. My elder son was a disaster. <laughs> now, my elder son, at one point, I said to his teacher, so let me see if I got this right. The only kids in this class he's beating are crack babies. <laughs> and she, they're not used to parents saying shit like that. And she sort of swallowed. She said, pretty much. And so he went off. I tried to get him to join the Navy. My wife wasn't a big fan of that idea. He went off to a two-year hotel management program at some college. The best I can tell, the only requirement is that dad could write a big enough check. <laughs> and why does my phone not... And, um, and then he matured, and then he transferred to a four-year program. Neither institute was particularly scholarly. And then he went to New York City without a job, and he's now the director of event management at the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm going, what the fuck happened? What just happened? You never know. You Mount find Stupid. A it, it takes different amounts of time to climb Mount Stupid. Yeah. No, it's and fun. He climbed Mount Stupid. I mean, yeah. And I'm in the beginning of this journey. It's fun. My four-year-old, almost four-year-old, like he's hit this point where it's like, oh, wow. You can have conversations. Do you keep a diary? Do you keep a diary? I do. I do. You, sh you should. You should. What you should do is just open a Word document and just start every night do your Doogie Hauser thing and just type a few, just write a few things. You don't know what to. You don't know what you'll do with it. You just write them down. They'll say something so fucking funny, and you swear you'll remember it and you won't. I remember a lot of shit because I used to tell my, tell the stories to my class. And and so that that I I like Homer was illiterate. He, Iliad and Odyssey was memorized. He memorized the damn story. Um, and so by telling my stories to my class, I remember them better. And uh, But my son started out way behind in violin. We didn't have a good teacher. I didn't know how important it was. And then in ninth grade, he got a, he got a good teacher. I think she whispered in the ear of the high school orchestra teacher, this kid, this kid needs a lot of rehab, but, but I think he could end up good because he seemed to get treated well. Yeah. And he started out behind six kids in his class who were all, you know, Korean girls and stuff like that, just banging away on the violin like crazy. And by his senior year, he was concert master. He was the guy who got the solo. One time he competed in a concerto competition and he, um, he got a letter saying, you came in second place. We had no idea you even existed. We don't know where you came from. You should contact us. There's things we can do for you and things like that. So, so this, this group had no idea. This kid was just a, an unknown in town. And then he played with a professional orchestra. He did a, did a solo in a music festival. And I remember when the, 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 the conductor was a professional orchestra said he's played Tchaikovsky and said when this was written it was considered to be unplayable and then he played Tchaikovsky now there's violinists who know how to play Tchaikovsky and so they say well that's stupid but again Seabiscuit he he took up lacrosse in 10th grade and he he picked it up so fucking fast you played lacrosse well, we talked about lacrosse right yeah yeah Big Lax guy. He was 
totally ambidextrous within a month and a half. And then one, when I sent him to a bunch of camps, and one day he was, he was playing catch with a guy, a Syracuse player. And I watched his coach lean over and say something to the other coaches who were just sitting there watching. I watched them all sort of sit forward and watch him. And the Syracuse player was chucking the ball randomly. Now, I know a Syracuse player could hit a fly. And the ball was left, right, you know, high, low. And Thomas just grabbing it out of the air from every direction. No problem whatsoever. And afterwards, I talked to the coach, who's a former Hobart player. And I said, did you lean over and tell those guys he's been playing lacrosse for four months? He said, yeah, I did. And they were just flabbergasted. Just flabbergasted. So he played on a travel team, and they didn't know he'd never played lacrosse. For reference out there, like building stick skills in lacrosse takes time. (laughs) For most, but it doesn't take as much time as people think, though. It's a great sport. It's a great sport for picking up a little too late. Yeah, I picked it up in eighth grade. Yeah, I picked it up in seventh, and. uh, and then gymnastics knocked it out. I needed to do gymnastics full year. So uh, I played for two years. Um, do you watch lacrosse now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Tommy Abbott was my teammate. Oh, really? I think we talked about this. Yeah, Tommy Abbott yeah. was the, the southpaw on my, on my attack. So I was a crease, crease attack. He was the southpaw. He was clearly better than me. Clearly. Um. He ended up being three-time first-team All-American, so I didn't know he was that good. I just knew he was better than me. And as I'm sure I told you before, the defenseman who beat the fuck out of me fairly routinely ended up being the long snapper for the Cowboys for 12 years. Rafferty, Tom Rafferty. So my self-image of lacrosse may not be my best sport was was a little distorted. (laughs) The the other defenseman who was not a problem at all played for Georgetown, right? So I, I... but I was a gymnast at heart. I, I just wanted to do gymnastics. And I wasn't, what, relatively, I wasn't as good at gymnastics, but I loved it. I just adored it. Yeah, we've, got, uh, we've got lacrosse sticks in the boys' hands already. My brother played D1. He got them fiddle sticks. Where do you play? Where do you Bryant, play? Bryant University. Bryant. Yeah, Island. Bryant's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, do you make them wear gloves when they play catch? No, they can't catch yet. They just uh, we're working on cradling. And, uh, okay. So once they get serious, get the gloves on them. That's my advice. Yeah. And my son and I, we play catch. So we had, we had a wonderful time because uh, I bought two sticks, and then we we'd play catch two hours a day. And he'd get mad at me for throwing the ball poorly occasionally. I'd say, Thomas, do you really think the ball is always going to come to the right place? You gotta learn to catch it wherever it's reachable, and uh, and and he got to that point. And again, because he was right-handed, he played left hand probably sixty or seventy percent of the time to strengthen his left hand. Yeah, and uh, so, so he's truly ambidextrous. I can't get the uh, the smell of my. You said gloves. I can smell my gloves. Uh, from my yeah. in my mind now. They get to, they get a little rancid, don't they? The yeah. problem I had is I had terrible gloves. I mean, I had these gloves that were like ten pounds a piece. They were these big leather things, and and the other thing is I had a wooden stick, 
plastic sticks had been introduced, and I think I think if I'd gotten a plastic stick, it would have made a big difference because because they're more reproducible. You break a wooden stick, you got to find a new stick. I uh, I coached when I coached, I used the wooden stick. Just as like a flex, like all right, I'm the coach. I got the wooden stick. Here we go. <laughs> well, yeah, um, yeah. I I, uh, I wish I'd had a plastic stick. That would have that would have made a big difference. Way more reproducible. And yeah. and um, and then I when my son took it up, I I I realized he needs to get a lot of game time, and so I set up two lacrosse leagues in town. It was stupid. I mean, there's no way that we shouldn't have had lacrosse leagues in town. Father, so I set up a fight. Friday night lacrosse, we'd go up to a rink and play box lacrosse. And I rounded up all the division one players I could find, all the high school players I could find, all the coaches I could find, and, and we'd play box lacrosse every Friday night. And then, uh, and then I had Tuesday and Thursday evening lacrosse during the summer. And then the Ithaca high school team got better. And, and they're, the, one of their coaches said, I want my guys to play together. So, so I'll tell you what. So you take the high school team, you're one team, and I will take the adults and they're the other team. And one of them was like the Indian national goalie. I mean, we had some Tad Hobart players, Cornell players. I said, our guys will play your guys. And therefore you can play as a team. So what happened? So the first year, Ithaca played against a team called West Genesee. Yep. Now, do you know West Genesee? Yeah, I mean, they're historically incredible at lacrosse. Yeah, 15 state titles. Yeah. So they play West Genesee, and I called my brother, and I said, Ithaca played West Genesee in the uh, regional regional um, bracket. And he said, how much of a bloodbath was it? And I said, well, it was not too bad. It was eight to four. We won. <laughs> and my, my brother just shit a brick because West Genesee had – you know, we I mean, beat West Genesee when I played, but it was just pure luck. And for for anybody listening to this right now, to uh, to describe the um, the reverence people have for West Genesee, like there's a drill that every high school team in the world runs. It's called West Genesee. It's like you shorten the field up and you go three <laughs> on three. It's called the West Genesee. So, so, so then Genesee year drill. two comes. Year two comes. And, and Ithaca didn't have the depth. So we had from senior down to freshman. When I played, you, did, you didn't start on the, on the varsity until you were a junior. I mean, we had so much depth. You, you, were, you were JV in 10th grade, no matter how good you were. And, uh, and so then the second year comes, and I figure West Tennessee is going to come back, and they are going to be so goddamn angry, they're going to kick our ass. We almost took them to the mercy clock. That's where – you get so far ahead, they stop, they stop turning the clock off when the ball goes out of bounds. So we had them up like 13 to two at one point. And, and our face-off guy, you know how good West Genesee's face-off guy's got to be, right? This is going to be a D1 face-off guy. Our face-off guy went 13 and 0 against them in face-offs. Holy 13 shit. and 0. So he is, was a Harvard recruit. So I sent an email to the Harvard coach and said, do you know that your most recent face-off recruit just beat West Genesee 13 to nothing on face-offs? He's, he emails back. He said, yes, I did. Yes, I got the stat line immediately. <laughs> and, and 
Yeah, so he became Harvard's face-off guy. And then the third year, we won again. We took West Tennessee three years in a row. And then I passed the, the, the wand over to someone else to run the leagues, and they dropped the ball, and now we're mediocre again. What I ran can't you do, another... Dave Collum? What can't you do? Well, I just got them organized. I didn't. I didn't. I actually didn't play. I was so tempted, but I didn't play. I almost tried to play in the Lake Placid tournament. I almost. That's where you know the guys take off their helmets and the old guys and they look like Darth Vader. You know, oh my God! You know, and and you know they're talking about their four hundred one ks on the sidelines. Seven thousand lacrosse players up in Lake Placid. I almost tried to play in that, and then I said, "No, weekend warrior shit, bad idea." And not worth it. Um, not worth it. Uh, not worth the risk. Um, I played box lacrosse for a little bit after college, night leagues. After a while, especially box. So, so, so if you're a good lacrosse player, you get jobs on Wall Street because the various firms have teams, and they want the Wall Street mafia. Players. The Wall That's Street lacrosse right. mafia. The, it's a real thing. The Gotham League. The Gotham League. Right, yeah. the Gotham League, and uh, and and you know, box lacrosse players, lacrosse was like Tony Greer played lacrosse for Cornell, for example. Yep. Um, McEnany was one of the greatest attackmen in history. He was in the towers when they went down. Um, and uh, McEnany French, the the Cornell lacrosse dynasty with Richie Moran was extraordinary. So McEnany had to play freshman lacrosse because. Because they had freshman lacrosse back then, and and Richie would go over to uh, to watch the freshman play, and there's McEnany scoring 15 goals, right? <laughs> and he was the most crazy legged attackman you ever saw, and his other attackman was French, who was also first two first team All Americans on one team, right? This was an this was a, this was a legendary team, and. Uh, and and uh, they won back-to-back national titles, and then they went back to being sort of top ten. Um, never won another title. Came close. They should have won one. It's a hard. What's happened to What's happened to Cornell in recent years? They've fallen off since Pinnell left. Um, well, well, no, not not true. I think it was last year, the the year after COVID. So, so Ivy's canceled lacrosse. Cornell lost a couple of players because of that. Yep. They have a brand new coach who was a former Cornell player. And the next year they took Maryland to the wire in the national title. So oh, Cornell yeah. did not fall off. They did not so fall he off. got coach of the year because here's this young punk. And we were the only team that gave Maryland guff. Maryland owned everyone else. And they went undefeated. It was like the first truly undefeated, undefeated season in a while. Right. And we took them to the wire. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, 10 to nine, it was something like, you know, 10 to 10 to seven or eight, but no one stayed with Maryland that year. And, uh, and, and that was his rookie season as a coach with several lost players. So now Cornell hasn't fallen off a cliff. We'll see what this year brings. That was two years ago. I think, I don't know what happened last year. I can't remember. I'm looking for it right now, but, uh, God, lacrosse. If you guys don't like watch lacrosse, college lacrosse specifically, it's, uh, it's a great sport. It's hockey it's my, with control. It's my favorite sport. Yeah, they won eleven it's to four. It's the fastest growing sport. They won eleven to four. four yeah. Year. Yeah. Lost um, to Penn State. The amazing game was when it was, a, I think, a, a semifinal game against Duke. 
and they got down by nine goals or something like 10 to one. And it was something like 120 degrees on the field. It was, it was a scorching hot game. And they came back to tie it up and lost in overtime. Yeah, the national championship was, game. Right? Was that the national title game? I can't I remember. It, but it, yeah. But then there was the other one where they went, I think they went against Syracuse. And Cornell's bench just wasn't quite deep enough. And we sort of gassed out at the very end. We had a three-game lead. And we were really the team that, to beat. And somehow Syracuse pulled it off, and it was so painful to watch. I woke up at 5 o'clock the next morning with the game in my head, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, how would you like to be a player? Well, that was, uh, that was, <laughs> that so was my, painful. my brother's uh, highlight of his college career. They made it to the tournament as the 15 seed, beat Syracuse in the Dome. I remember that. I remember that Bryant team. That's why, yeah. that's why I clicked when you said Bryant. He was a captain on that team. Um. Yeah, that was fun. I was in Chicago watching that game, about to run through the TV. Well, we have one of the, um, I think it's the Chris brothers, Chris brothers. Do you know those guys? It's one of these five-man brothers where, where yeah. you, one of them by definition is a goalie and then there's attack and, and middies amongst the other two. Yeah, the Cavanaugh's uh, just won for Notre Dame last year. Right. And, uh, yeah. and uh, we have one of them on the team and he's still, I think he's a junior maybe. Um, so the Ivies are very good in lacrosse. They're still, you know, the prep schools, we don't even, by the way, get kids from Syracuse area. If you look at Cornell's team, there's hardly any coming out of West Genesee, Faithful Manlius sort of schools. They're, they're coming out of uh, prep schools. A lot of them coming out of prep schools. And, uh, you know, it, it was created by Harkness, who was both the foot the the hockey and the lacrosse coach and he had a network in canada he could pull kids out of canada like crazy you want the canadians on your team crazy stick yeah. skills tough as nails but 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 one-handed yes because they play box one-handed because it's too cold that's right you can spot them a mile away you can see the box in their style right right from the <laughs> yeah. get-go yeah and and so this Three three time All American on my team, the other the Southpaw, I said to someone, I said, Well, he must have he must have lost he must have solved that handedness problem. And someone said, No, he never was. He was always a Southpaw. And I didn't think you could play that level of lacrosse without eventually getting your, your weak hand stronger. But uh, but no, he was always a southpaw, but uh, he, he very successful. Very successful. Um and uh Lacrosse is the rap, most rapidly growing sport. It's moving across the country. The problem is now, now you've got the, you know, the, the Michigans and the Notre Dames and the Ohio States and the, and it's, and now it's, it's going to be hard for the traditional winners to win. And I don't think, by the way, uh, Gary Gate is necessarily the best coach for Syracuse. My suspicion is he's not a great coach. Just a hunch. The former Philadelphia Wings player, Gary Gate. Yeah. <laughs> well, Gary so, Gates so, so I'm in class and I, I introduced my son to Gary Gate. I said, Thomas, this is Gary Gate. And they shook hands and my son was just flabbergasted, just blown away. Anyone who's anyone in lacrosse is up in Placid. You, you walk through there and there's just legends of lacrosse as far as the eye can see. And, uh, and uh, they're all there. And the, the, the open division men's lacrosse is some spectacular lacrosse up there. 
they got everybody up there. Who was the guy? Paul, what's his name from Hopkins? Paul, come on, give me his uh, name. Paul, the dude who runs the PLL, Paul Rabel? Yeah, Rabel. Yeah. Rabel was like a sophomore. And I'm looking at this kid and I'm going, this is a man child. He's like this huge thing, but he's a kid. And, yeah, he's. And, uh, he, he was he's like good. six five or six seven or something like that. He's massive. He's but just solid, just a scaled up version of a hundred and twenty pound wrestler or something. You know, he was just just a phenom. Yeah. And you know, um, not Pinnell, the other Cornell guy who won the Tawarton Trophy. I was drawing name blank. So Pinnell and this other guy won the Tawarton Trophy, which is the Heisman. He came to Cornell to play soccer and switched to lacrosse. Now, I think he played lacrosse, but he got recruited for soccer. That's usually either play football and lacrosse or soccer or lacrosse. I actually think soccer. Ba- a, lot of, a lot of basketball lacrosse, too. You know, season- uh, Richie Moran used to have his team play basketball during the winter because it's it's like a half-court, half-field offense, right? So oh, he yeah. – he, so 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 basketball and lacrosse have tremendous similarities. I'm trying to see, I'm trying to see the um, Cornell Tawaraton winners. Pinnell. What's his name? Kirst was in the the running this year. Yeah, he's good. So we got a list no. here. Max Seabald. That's who it was. Seabald. Seabald. Yeah. Seabald was actually the one who ultimately sort of had the control of the ball when Cornell was lost midi. to uh, Syracuse. He was a midi yeah. too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was gassed out. He had nothing left. He just yeah. had nothing left. What they should have done is taken a guy off the bench and said, take the ball and run as fast as you can. Just run as yeah. fast as you can. And no one on that field right now can run as fast as you run. Um, and uh, But that's hindsight. That's coaching in hindsight. Um and then um, Pinnell was an interesting case because Pinnell was a late bloomer in high school. So he sends tapes to various coaches and, and he, 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 got, he got an offer from Quinnipiac and, and he was going to go to Quinnipiac. And then, and then um, what's his face? Uh, Tambroni spotted him and said, we'll take him. He's second team All-American as a freshman. And I asked Tambroni, I said, did you know he was that good? And he said, I knew he was good. I didn't think he was that good. I mean, that, I think he was gonna that really, that really, well, and, and be one of the greatest of all time, right? Um, but it, to be second team All-American as a freshman that no one recruited is a rather, it's a serious diamond in the rough moment. Yeah. That's like, um, that's like the, 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 who was the Cowboys running back who was small, came from Florida, um, Hall of Famer. Not Ed a big Smith. guy. Emma Smith. Yeah, it's like Emma Smith. I was hoping Deuce Vaughn would have a good year. He's not. The Cowboys, five foot, five inch, 175 pound running back. Isn't his I, I was dad watching. on the coaching staff, too? Yeah, I was hoping because when he's out there, he looks like someone let their two year old out there. He's so tiny. <laughs> it's like, what, what, what is that kid doing on the field? Right. And, uh, and, and he had some great preseason running, but then he, 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 nothing showed up during the season. Yeah. I don't know. Dave, I'm about to pee myself. Okay. You know what you need? A cup. You need one of, the, one of these, the cup. 
This one, this one isn't te- big enough. The, <laughs> if you're my age, that's like twice what you need. <laughs> <laughs> one day I was drinking ginger ale and I pissed in a cup and I drank the wrong cup. Yeah, that'll the happen. That'll happen. Oh yeah, yeah. Not not twice. Not twice. <laughs> uh, I, I keep the cup separate. This is um, this is why I'll I love convers- conversation with you. Number one, we're always reminded that you peeing cups during episodes. But two. Where this conversation started, where it ended, it's like, yeah, the world's unrelated, fucked unrelated, up. very unrelated. But I think it's like a good reminder, like, this is what we need to get back to: is just worrying about lacrosse, worrying about our families, worrying about all this shit. Like, this That's is all we should exactly have to focus right. on. And 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 I want to get on Rogan. That's I'll make my, it happen. That's my holy grail. I'll make it happen. The mothership is literally it two. It's two blocks away from where I'm st- sitting right now. Is Rogan's. Comedy. Yeah, it's comedy club. Well, supposedly it's... my my resume is on his talent scout's desk, but uh, you know he should he should boot one of those you know octagon fighters or one of his comedian friends and make space for me. Um, I want to get knocked. But someone told gonna... me they could do it. Someone said they could make it happen, and and they asked for a resume, and and it never happened. I, I had some communication with him at one point um, via Twitter. Somehow he, he we he, we linked on Twitter. But that's about as close. His star rose faster than my star. So there's a time in his. Your star still rising. Yeah, right, 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 right. Did you see that video of Rogan from 1991? I posted it on Twitter. Yeah, I saw you post it on Conan O'Brien. It's creepy. He also looks like he's baked out of his mind. Probably He looks so high to me. Yeah, he looks so high. But he also sounds totally different. Yeah. He sounds totally different. He's, 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 uh. He looks like he took too many punches. Probably did. I mean, that's what they were talking about was MMA. Yeah, that was that. That was like I watched that about three times, in in amazement that that was Rogan. I used to watch his Taekwondo videos. You would not want to get a back kick from him. He had a deadly back kick, no, which breaks think, ribs. I don't breaks think ribs. Any type of kick from Joe Rogan, he's pretty jacked. No, no. And, and yeah, there's one video of him where he, where he totally knocks a guy cold with a reverse turning kick and he, he semi, semi reverse turning kick, semi back kick and the bam got flat as a pancake. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sparring him would, I'd only spar him so that I could say I sparred him. Yeah. Then I'd be in the ICU for who knows how long. I'm going to go knock down the doors to the mothership and then, uh, is he really two blocks away? The comedy club is yeah, we're on Sixth and Congress in Austin. It's it's on. That's interesting. Uh, it's on. So 16. I did a podcast this week with the guy who does warm up for Dave Smith's act. Okay. Dave Smith's a fucking genius. Can you get Dave Smith on here? I think I could if I I'd like to. I've reached out to him. He doesn't well, respond to my DMs, but he's been. Uh, he doesn't respond to my DMs either. So yeah. why does he follow? What what why why does he follow us and not respond to DMs? I don't know. I don't know. Dave, if you're listening, Dave Smith, I'd love to have you on the show. And and I highly recommend it. And you're my hero, Dave Smith. He is. We actually just posted a clip. Uh, that was the thing with the Epstein list. He, he just did a on his own show. Part of the problem, he did like a good rant on the fact that it wasn't covered in the media at all. Let you know that. And there, but there's no new information. No. That was really disappointing. You know, they showed the transcript and the chicks were forgetting the names of all the guys who raped them. 
I'm going, no, you didn't. Yeah. You just don't dare say it because you don't want to get capped, which I yeah. understand. I'm sympathetic to that. So go take a piss. I'll go back to work. I'm going to go take a piss, Fresh knock up on the mothership. Um, that's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Okay.